0: Hello, and welcome back to The Rewind. I'm Josh, and this is a podcast where I watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends. Today's episode is about both poor things and the iron claw. Join me today. I think she's now earned the right to be our odd creature exploring the world correspondent. It's Haley Jones. Haley, thank you for being here.
1: Hi, thank you for having me again. Happy to be
2: back.
0: Really excited to talk about this one with you and our other guest, who just finished tending to his stable of hybrid animals. It's Elijah Howard. Elijah, how's it going?
2: i'm i'm doing fine you can call me god if you want but you know
0: that's a yeah. god that, that was like a very confusing thing in the movie like to, to hear that over and over again I'm like wait is that what, what he calls himself that what, what is it, what kind of complex does he have um but uh poor pretty things.
2: obvious one frankly josh <laughs> yeah, 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 I,
0: know, I know i know uh but i mean it's his name too though kind of uh poor things is the newest movie from uh filmmaker yorgos lanthimos it is his follow-up to 2018's uh, the favorite, which uh, movie a movie which Elijah joined us on the podcast for, which is within the first year of the podcast, which is pretty crazy. Took him, I mean, you know, he was so prolific for a few years there, and just like he went away for a while, but uh, but now he's back and re re teaming with Emma Stone, who was also in The Favorite and was a Oscar nominee for that movie, and also re teaming with Tony McNamara, who uh, wrote The Favorite as well. He's the writer of Poor Things, but was uh, adapting a book. That was uh, from an actor, uh, Alicera Gray. It takes place in Victorian London. Uh, Emma Stone plays Bella Baxter, who is, a, uh, who is a bit of a creation by Willem Dafoe's Dr. Godwin God Baxter, who we're already talking about. And guys, I'm just going like, to kind of talk about what the creation is. I don't really care about spoilers at this point. This movie has been out for a while. Uh, God uh, came upon um, Bella's body when, uh, after whoever Bella was in a previous life uh, jumped off a bridge and uh, committed suicide, but she was pregnant when she did so. And God being uh, you know the surgeon and scientist that he is, sees an opportunity to, to do a science experiment which is apparently possible in this world where he takes the brain of her unborn baby and uh, brings uh, Bella back to life by putting the brain inside of her and sees, hey, what can I do if I control all the environmental factors and just, uh, raise this woman to have the, from the point of having an adult body in the mind of a baby into being a woman. And what will that look like? He brings in one of his uh, students played by Rami Youssef named Max McCandless to help him with the experiment of it all, but eventually tries to marry Bella off to Max. But as Bella uh, gets older and, you know, comes into her own, she wants to explore the world and explore her sexuality. And you know wants to go out on her own and that's largely what the movie is about is about seeing what happens as she kind of, you know, breaks away from the two of them and explores the rest of the world, which includes getting kind of sucked into the world of a lawyer named uh, Duncan Wedderburn, played by Mark Ruffalo. And she encounters a bunch of other characters along the way who I'm sure we will talk about as well. Guys, this movie, uh, it's, 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 uh, I'll, I'll take a step back for a second. Uh, Haley, I'm, I'm guessing you probably saw the favorite. Had, how familiar were you with, with like the prior works of Yorgos Lanthimos before this and how did you go and, and thus, and what did you know about this going in such that like, what were your expectations and how did you prepare to see it? in the setting in which you did, which was uh, with your family. And it's an interesting movie <laughs> to see with your family. So, well, so I guess that's a two part question. They're like, uh, what, what do you know about the um, Yorgos Lanthimos's other movies before this? And, uh, and with, with that knowledge, how did you pitch this as like a holiday movie with the family?
1: <laughs> interesting question. Mm-hmm. Um, I am unfamiliar with Yorgos's earlier films. I started with the lobster, which is a 2015 movie. And then I I also did see the killing of a sacred deer and the favorite I actually really didn't like The Lobster. I'm open to reevaluating it now that I've gone through the Elijah School of Film. But I loved Killing of a Sacred Deer and The Favorite when I watched them. Uh, So I had a kind of positive uh, association with Yorgos' work overall.
0: Quick, 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 quick aside. I don't know if I told you this when we did the podcast on The Favorite Elijah, but as someone who loved The Killing of a Sacred Deer, you might appreciate Haley. I saw it on a third date. Uh, there, weren't, there weren't. There weren't. Wow. <laughs> there weren't too many more dates after that, uh, for, for, but for other reasons other than the fact that, like, I took a girl to see the, the killing of a sacred deer on a third date. But uh, that might beat seeing the poor things to your family. I don't know. But uh, uh, so yeah, so it sounds like you did go on a journey with his movies so. though.
1: Yeah. Well, th- third date to see killing of a sacred deer. That's <laughs> that's like the decider between you never date that person ever again or you date them forever. Mm. But yeah, so I, I had a positive association with this director's work. Uh, and I was excited to see this movie. Uh, however, I had read some non-spoiler reviews of it, and I knew that it was extremely explicit, mm-hmm. more so than than most movies. And yeah, I, I ended up having to watch it with my family because of just how the showtimes worked out. I happened to be in Alaska during the period when I could watch this. And my pitch to them was not so much a pitch as a warning. It was... <laughs> Listen, family, my, my dear family, this is a very strange movie. I know that for a fact. And there's a lot of sex in it. And I also know that for a fact. So please, please, if you don't like it, don't be too mean to me. <laughs> and I will buy all of your tickets so you don't have to worry about it. <laughs> so I I was very worried that they wouldn't enjoy it. Yeah. Um, they've had they they, they have they all have very different tastes. Hmm. And, and It's been a mixed bag with getting them to watch movies that are kind of on the weird avant-garde side. Um, For instance, they loved The Lamb from a few years ago, Mm. but they hated The Lighthouse. So Mm. I never really know with them, but I was pleasantly surprised that they pretty much found the movie hilarious and they all had a very positive uh, experience with it. None of them were offended by it. They were all just genuinely happy to watch it and enjoyed it and had a good experience. So I was a happy camper.
0: So what was your experience with it then? What did you, what was your big reaction to it once you were able to you know be at ease with the <laughs> fact that you know they, they didn't like blame you for a scarring experience?
1: Well, there was relief as far as that part goes. I was very relieved, but I was I realized about ten to fifteen minutes into the movie that I hadn't stopped smiling, and I think I continued smiling for most of the movie because. At every moment that I wasn't being entertained by something hilarious that was going on in the dialogue, I was just enthralled with the look of the movie and just absorbing myself in how beautiful everything was, how eccentric the filmmaking was, all of those crazy zooms that happen every few seconds. I was just constantly entertained and constantly finding something to smile about, uh, which is not always the case, even for movies that I love. So... It was great.
0: I, I had a really fun time with it and like I just and I did a lot of catching up over the last couple of weeks of December like trying to catch up on letterbox reviews. I didn't quite get to writing this one yet even as I've already seen it twice and I was like and like I was trying to think about how what I want to say about it and like I was thinking and like I don't know if you've taken much of it in. there's like this online discourse about whether like, people are trying to describe whether it's like a feminist film or not. And if that's like a misnomer or not. And I'm like, and, and then I, and I, I I found myself agreeing with the people that are like, Hey, you can kind of sidestep that conversation and just be like, look, it's a, it's a really entertaining, funny movie about someone exploring the world. You don't necessarily have to, not not to say there's not some valid discussion to be had about that, but I'm like, look, you can just like enjoy like just how fun this is and how great of a performance it is. And it's like how fun this movie is to look at. I don't really necessarily feel the need to like, you know, wade into those waters myself, uh, and I, and like I was just like struggling to like say if I wanted to say anything about that, but it's like again, perfectly reasonable to have opinions on that issue or not. But I'm just like I just found so much to appreciate here, regardless of what I would say about that topic itself. Um Elijah, what what, what was your uh, what was your big uh, takeaway from Poor Things as someone that I know really does respect your ghost's work?
2: I had a pretty good idea from you know. The first trailer, kind of what we were going to be generally in for. I mean, this is, it's sort of like vintage Yorgos Lanthimos, right? Like, you know, it, it has a lot of elements of every film that he's done so far. It's got, you know, kind of the isolated alien quality of Dogtooth, it's got the you know it's got sort of the the ensemble of films like Alps and The Favorite. It goes to some dark places like Killing of a <laughs> Sacred Deer, um, and of course it's whimsical and bizarre like The Lobster. So so a lot of it it was stuff that I was pretty much expecting, and I think in that regard I think it delivered. Uh, twenty twenty three I think was an interesting year in terms of a lot of films from directors who were kind of like making their archetypical film in some ways, even if they didn't always look like that at first glance. Like, I mean, I think that you could say that about poor things. I think you could also say it about Killers of the Flower Moon, you know, kind of being sort of the archetypical Scorsese film in a way, Oppenheimer, the archetypical Nolan film. Even if they have kind of these different trappings to them, there's so many elements that are kind of like exactly what you would expect from the person making the movie and and poor things wasn't really any difference i mean you got a director with you know not maybe not necessarily a lot of movies he's not ultimately not incredibly prolific i mean he's made i think uh like six features maybe so this might be the seventh you know it, it, in the entire 21st century which is is more than some people but it's not um
0: yeah it's just yeah it was, I, I was i made the comment about being being prolific because like lobster killing every sacred deal the favorite came out Three years in a row, and then we just didn't have another one for five years.
2: Right. So yeah, he he definitely hit a little bit of a stride there. That's for sure. But um, you don't necessarily have a whole lot of backing with which to you know to kind of figure what you're going to expect. And yet, I think anybody who has seen, even discounting Dogtooth and Alps and Kinetta, which I know are you know kind of on the lesser scene side, if you've seen the Lobster, if you've seen Killing of a Sacred Deer, if you've seen the favorite. You would have an idea of what to expect from Poor Things, and I think it definitely delivers in that regard, um, while not being lazy, which was the main thing that I was hoping for. Um, I'm fine with directors kind of going back to some you know territory that they're familiar with, um, as long as they put the effort in. You know, you got to put in the backwork to make it uh, kind of feel fresh. And Poor Things definitely. Uh, had that
0: yeah it doesn't really feel like anything you've seen before probably i mean in some way
2: for sure it's it, it there's a lot of lanthimosness to it but it is not yeah it's a very unique film and so i was i was appreciative of that
0: yeah I mean, there's like a very distinct i mean and what i'm interested because you know i guess he's already shot his next movie with emma stone and a lot of the other same people from this one and but he he wrote that one with the same guy he wrote like everything before the um before the favorite with i, I wonder if that's gonna have like the feeling of like you know i guess he can make as the director he can make these people talk however they want to but they you know with the tony mcnamara scripts there's like a very different way that people talk you know from how they did in his other movies before that where they had a very stilted way of delivering the dialogue and so it, it, it'd, be, it'd be curious to see if they like go back to that but like yeah it still in some ways does feel like his kind of thing even if it doesn't like sound like that other stuff so I'm, and i and i though i'm just like a big fan of tony mcnamara so like i'm really down with like how this stuff like you know just i don't know yeah there are like so many really interesting like turns of phrase that like and and i i mean it's probably as good a time as any to talk a little bit about emma stone but like because i mean i maybe that stuff doesn't work if it's not her delivering the dialogue but they're like first of all like she you know I, I, i i on my second viewing i was really able to appreciate probably how much thought she put into it and just like how that character moves at the different stages of her life when she's like you know at the different levels of like whatever age the brain is at at that point but then like I, I was really able to appreciate in like the second half of it, you know, like some of the turns of phrase that like they did right for her as Bella, like, you know, gets to like a really certain level of, you know, intelligence and, or uh, absorption of knowledge and vocabulary. And it was like really, really fun to like, you know, take that all in and be like, Oh, wow. This is like a, I've not heard a character like talk like this and not just his movie, but really many movies at all. So Elijah also made the comment about the, um the trailer. And like, I, I, I did watch the trailer like once and I maybe saw it, but I didn't pay that close of attention to it. Cause I'm just not a big trailer guy. So I don't even think I understood. I, I don't think I knew the conceit until I showed up. I think I knew that like, it looked like Emma Stone was doing something weird, but I don't even think I knew the mad scientist Frankenstein aspect of it at all. Really. I just kind of knew, okay, I've heard this movie is kind of crazy. It's about some woman learning about the world. And like, that is ba- th- That is basically it. So I'm, so I'm curious, uh, Haley, what did you like, it's, it seems, I'm sure, it seems like you'd read up a little bit of not going in, such that you warned your family and whatnot, but, like, once you actually got into, like, what, did, how did you ultimately feel about, like, you know, uh, Emma Stone's performance and how that kind of, like, made or break the movie?
1: So, I was very, very impressed with Emma Stone in this. What she accomplishes, especially at the beginning of the film, where she's in this sort of childlike state of consciousness, there's just, like, a complete, like, lack of self-consciousness from her as an actress, and she's absolutely willing to go into this, this mental and physical state that most of us are not comfortable even, like, mimicking or replicating or thinking about, because it's something so far back in our experience. And it's something that's not intentional. And so her being able to do that intentionally and make it witty and entertaining was just it it blew my mind. And I definitely agree with what you said about how impressive some of the dialogue from Emma Stone was, especially one thing that I was worried about with this movie is that it would get into that kind of twee territory of unnecessarily complex dialogue for the sake of it, especially as she gained more intelligence, as she started reading more, as she started becoming more educated.
0: Especially when we're talking about people in like Victorian era London or whatever.
1: Exactly. Like I was worried it would, it would get like, almost shakespearean in its complexity and it would alienate people and it would seem kind of pretentious and that was actually my sister had the same kind of impression when when the film started and it was all in black and white she was like oh is Mm -hmm. this gonna is this gonna make me feel like i can't access this you know like is this is this gonna be some really haughty high-minded exercise but the amazing thing with the dialogue is that yes there are some moments where there's complex words and complex phrases but a lot of times it's the simplicity that makes it poetic It it is like nothing i've ever seen and i would love to read the script if it ever gets put out yeah i thought about I,
0: I didn't have time i really wanted i actually had the same thought about wanting to google it like, just to, like go back and like find the lines i really like because i just I'm a good movie goer and I didn't want to like, you know, type stuff out of my phone, which I do sometimes if like, there's not people around me, but like my second viewing was like almost sold out when I saw it, like a, when it'd already been out for a month. So I'm glad the movie's still kicking around in theaters, but like, didn't have the chance to really like go back and like write too many things down. But like, there were so many moments where I really wanted to.
1: Yes, absolutely. So many incredible lines. Um, I, And I don't have any that I recall off the top of <laughs> my head, but my, my sister's favorite, favorite line was... Um, we are our own means of production. <laughs>
0: <laughs> There's okay. There was one I got reminded about when I was like watching a review where it was like, um, at one point she tells uh Wedderburn, I look at you and feel nothing but the lingering question of how did I ever want you? Uh, so like you know, that, that, that that's that's a pretty good one too. And that's a it was, it's really fun to see that relationship develop as, as she like you know comes into her own. That's like just a really fun arc of the movie, even like because. But he he doesn't really change at all, but she does. Elijah, Elijah, uh, how, specifically we didn't dwell too much on it. Like, how did you feel about just like being introduced to Bella and like, you know, just uh, specifically Emma Stone playing a baby? Like did 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 you like did you laugh that much at that? Like were you able to like uh were you able to appreciate just like you know, just like how bizarre that was like how, how did you feel as you're like watching like being introduced to that version of Bella?
2: I I very much enjoyed it. I thought it was very funny. Um you know as Haley pointed out there is a kind of Lack of self-consciousness, lack of, lack of, you know, kind of ego, right? To, to make that kind of performance work. Um, and she absolutely, you know, Emma absolutely displays that. Um, and it's it's in kind of all aspects of it. It's in the transformation of the physical performance, you know, the sort of awkward baby-like gait that she has when she walks, um, you know, it's it's everything. Um, and it, it's a full transformation. And I think that's it's really impressive. It it makes for a kind of funny dissonance, at, le- at least for me, and I would hope for most audience members. But it is kind of the point of the movie in some way, right? Where it's like the character is sort of because of the the nature of her existence as sort of this caged bird at the beginning of the film she is marked by her relationships with the men around her and you know it kind of reflects how those relationships uh you know develop with her and something that I thought was was a great bit of dissonance is just sort of putting the audience in this position of watching her Emma Stone perform this way and then having characters react in such what I would consider to be a very incongruous response, which is, you know, to be attracted to her um, or or mystified by her or, uh, you know, whatever it may be, instead of just viewing her like she is, which is a child and being sort of like, oh, that's cute, which is in and of itself, right? It's difficult because she is physically not a baby. She is... Uh, you know a fully grown woman but Wetter,
0: Wetterman is like taken by her just from the idea that men want to like are like that obsessive over her and want to do a contract about her. Like he is like into it before he even meets her. It's very like there is like he's taken by that idea of her even before he meets her.
2: Right. And that's the uh, you know that that's kind of the the two male relationships uh, you know that develop with the character early on are are Dunk, you know, Mark Ruffalo's Duncan and Rama Yusuf's character Max, who Despite the gulf of, you know, of moralism between their intentions, are both kind of troubling in the way that they interact with her, and it's only really Willem Dafoe's character that treats her like the child that she is, up into a point.
0: Even if he's trying to marry her off before he really.
2: <laughs> right before he really should, and. You know, maybe you can sort of write that off as, oh, this is supposed to be the Victorian era, but it's clearly a heightened reality and you're not supposed to view it as a one to one. You know, it's supposed to be sort of reflective of maybe. It should say, some... it should say,
0: all... it should say that's not the only problematic thing he does and that he just kind of still controls her like a science experiment instead of raising her like a human being.
2: Right, exactly. <laughs> and that's the problem with his relationship, even though he treats her as the child that she is. His relationship with her is still reflective of his relationship with his father that they delve into sort of more as the movie goes on. You know, this, this sort of idea that even if his intentions are not to have sex with a child, basically, as you would say about Duncan or Max, his relationship still has this sort of contr- controlling element to it. And I think it's that control that the movie tends to interrogate. And so at the center of all of this, right, getting back to your getting back to your actual question is, you know, is this character? is Bella Baxter? is Emma Stone's performance? And because of that element of the narrative being primarily driven by uh, at first by the people who ha- have these sort of goals and motivations surrounding her, it, it makes it sort of tough to, you know, to keep the performance from careening into being ridiculous or something like that.
0: It really never gets to that point. Yeah,
2: it it really doesn't. Which is bizarre to say about a movie like this, which is on the face of it, pretty ridiculous. But I don't think you ever all of her observations as an actress, Emma Stone's observations, I think, about the way that children behave and mimicking those in her physical performance and her delivery of lines are all so acutely observed. There's, there's nothing that feels like a caricature. It genuinely feels like a child in a woman's body, and that's equally impressive and scary in some ways. <laughs> so,
0: yeah, it's funny when you're talking about the different ways in which the guys control her because I, I had the thought I, I wasn't as articulate about it before when I was talking about like me seeing the commentary about in the the narratives about whether or not it's like a feminist film. And I I did have the thought beforehand. It's like, you know, it might, it's maybe it's just a film about how like, you know, men are kind of dumb and simpletons in the face of like a woman without having to necessarily be about like that woman's feminism. It can just be like, yeah, she's just a person exploring the world and these dudes are just like, being dumb dudes you know and 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 or or just kind of neanderthals in the case of the christopher abbott character who i'm sure will uh also talk about a bit and uh and, and i'm very curious to hear what you guys think about like mark ruffalo because i've never really seen him do anything like this before it was quite fun even if that guy is you know kind of the worst also i guess there are a lot of different guys that like talk about in this movie but like I'm, i guess if i want to try and stick with it a little bit chronologically like i want to talk i want to talk about god a little bit more and because i was like really fascinated by that character and like how she's with is with him at the beginning and versus like how she is at the end it was like a real oh shit moment for me when he actually like reveals what he did because again I, I knew very little going in and I, and I i mean maybe some people kind of like had learned that much about the the actual surgery and the pregnancy and all that i had no idea so it's like i was already kind of in this guy, and i was like holy crap that's like that's like wild that you actually did that. And that was one of the bigger, probably one of the bigger, oh shit moments for me out of like, out of any 2023 movie was just him explaining to Max what he did. And it's like, even though that is incredibly fucked up, I still wasn't like totally out on him as like a person or a character. I I don't know if that speaks to like some kind of humanity in his performance as like as disfigured as he is and as odd as as his mind must be. How did you feel about Godwin as a character and like how the audience is like seeing him throughout the movie?
1: I think I'll I'll call him Godwin just to not get mixed up when I actually say the word God. But (laughs) Godwin to me was probably the the most interesting character in the movie, Mm -hmm. apart from Bella. And I definitely agree that there, there is this strange humanity to him that keeps him from being completely villainous or completely unlikable. And I think that also makes him more complicated than just a kind of religious metaphor for a creator god. Because this God, this Godwin, is also a creation. He was created by somebody who inflicted lots of pain on him as he was growing up, and that pain and that monstrosity that was inflicted upon him went on to define his outlook and his way of approaching the world.
0: Oh God, yeah. The thing where he's talking about his dad and the thumbs was uh, one of the more disturbing things at a movie full.
1: Absolutely, yeah. And and having him as the person who created Bella goes back to a theme of cruelty that is discussed multiple times throughout the movie, this idea of of the cruelty of the universe and the cruelty of human beings. And I think having him at, at sort of the start of the story as the impetus for everything and the reason why Bella exists is kind of indicating that there's this innate level of cruelty in the human condition and in life that we all have to contend with. And his way of contending with it is is by reenacting it. He takes the sort of cruelties that he experienced through being experimented on, and in trying to process them, ends up inflicting them on other people. And he doesn't do it out of malice. He doesn't do it out of any sort of unkindness, but he just does it to kind of rationalize the world around him.
0: Well, you know, one thing that I really liked about that character and a the choice they made with him was that, like, a lot of them don't, a lot of the other characters, the especially uh, especially um, Ruffalo and Christopher Abbott, a lot of them, like, don't ever really stop trying to control her. But, like, the moment where he's like, yeah, I'll let her go to Lisbon, like, it's not really, good, there's no really point in fighting it at this point, I thought that was really interesting. It was like, you know, yeah, he was trying to, like, control her a lot growing up. Like, at that point, it was almost like in a way he understood his science experiment was complete and it did shows like some level of humanity that like at that point he wasn't going to like stand in her way once she like insisted enough and it, at some point like just cuz he physically almost looks a little monstrous and you know you could argue some of his actions were pretty monstrous you're almost like conditioned to think that guy is going to fight tooth and nail to stop when this like strange lawyer comes to take his kind of child away uh, and like and, and that and that he doesn't, I think, all, automatically made him like way more interesting as a character, which kind of go, goes along with what you're saying. Was it like another way in which he's not exactly just a simple godlike creator person?
1: He kind of went into he, he was you know in his own sort of disturbing way a parent. You know he became a parent whether he intended to or not, and I think that in that affected his attitude towards Bella ultimately. I think by the time she was sort of trying to run away and trying to defy him, he began to. Feel more like a parent and less like a like a scientist in a controlled lab.
2: Yeah, I think it's 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 an interesting kind of point to make because the movie doesn't exactly do a great job sort of explaining time, like the the flow of time in the film. Mm. But it's like it puts us in a weird position as the audience because when we see, uh, you know Emma Stone for the first time, you know in the early scenes of the movie. Even though she is childlike, because it's Emma Stone and because it's an adult, there's there's almost a sense I think for the audience of like ah oh, this must have been going on for a long time. But the reality is when the movie opens, we're only like a couple of weeks at most into his experiment, right? It's a fairly new thing, uh, and so there's a sense that he's learning kind of alongside her what it's like to actually have another human in your care um as she is learning to be a human (laughs) learning to to be a real person uh he's learning for the first time what it's like to actually to have somebody that you're that he's responsible for and it's it's interesting because it is it's a kind of like inversion of the idea of, of frankenstein which is obviously a big you know i think thematic influence in some ways for this movie but it's like you know it Victor Frankenstein in in the book and you know Mary Shelley's book and you know m- most presentations of the story thereafter uh Victor Frankenstein is a, is a controlling megalomaniac who never releases his grasp on his creation on his monster even to his own demise and so what i liked is that you know he is he is a monstrous person godwin baxter um you know his his behavior is a reflection of his own upbringing and he is inflicting that pain on somebody else. Yes. But there is a sort of human element in a redemption in that it's like, he is not a, he's not a character in a, you know, in a dime store Gothic novel, he's a real person. And he learns fairly quickly that he actually does care about this other person. But now the, the experiment is, is too far gone for him to go back. So mm-hmm. I think the answer, right, is the only the only course of action for him really is to let her go, even though he knows it's a bad idea. Like it would be too cruel to, you know, to trap her and well,
0: too cruel. And He's already seen like that. She is willing to like run roughshod over his like, you know, morgue slash operating room if she doesn't if she, she doesn't get her way in something small. So, uh, right. <laughs> you know, imagine the destruction she could uh, rot otherwise. Um, I, I, guys, I, w- I want to talk about the Lisbon stuff cause, uh, that's probably like t- the most fun stuff in the movie to me and to both from a, you know, um, a entertainment standpoint, but also just a look at standpoint, uh, I, they, 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 she, she and Wetterman get there and they have, you know, um, all kinds of, uh, all, all kinds of sex in just about every position. And then they have like a hilarious dinner. There's a fun dance scene. She accepts to explore the city. There's just a ton going on. Elijah, what did you kind of find the most, uh, what, 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 what did you really enjoy about that part of the movie?
2: Uh, well, obviously, it's a current, you know, period Yorgos film, so it's got to have a dance number in it. <laughs> uh, the favorite had a very similarly uh, choreographed dance, I noticed, which I really appreciated. I don't know if that was just like a little weird personal callback for Yorgos, but uh, I, I think the best part for me about that was the engagement of the film in sort of this pastiche Of an entire like style and era of fiction. Basically, like this whole concept in like late Victorian literature of like the journey of self discovery. And it's usually presented exactly like it is in the movie, of course, with different messaging and different thematic material though. But it usually involves. A woman or a young man uh, running away to a, a to an exotic foreign land, and usually in those instances, uh, you know, in the classic Victorian understanding, right? the The discovery that they make while they're there is le- less uh, good. It's usually more that it's like ah, things were better back home, kind of thing, <laughs> or the 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 mores that hold society together are good and should be observed. So I I like that this movie kind of turns those tropes, uh, you know, on its on their heads in this segment. It plays with that that same style, the exotic, the the uh, sumptuousness, you know, the engagement of things like you know, discovery the, is good. The, the the linking and specifically the linking together of things like food and sex and dancing and alcohol and, um. You know, usually those things were presented as societal ills that needed to be avoided. Um, <laughs> and here, they are raucous and sometimes disturbing, but they are, are ultimately good. They're ultimately important for kind of helping uh, Bella t- to understand the absurdity of her current situation. Um, and there's there's some more overt ways of doing it like the dance number and the like the dance that turns into a fight that the fight that turns into a dance i don't (laughs) quite remember exactly how it goes but then there's also more subtle versions of it in that where she's exploring lisbon and she stumbles upon a couple having an argument and the woman like screaming at her and telling her to leave and uh you know it's it's just like a little moment but it's kind of it's kind of the thing that's like it sort of grounds the whole segment and makes you realize that not all of this is is a fantasy, that there that there is sort of this reality behind everything. Um, and there was a few moments like that in, in, in the Lisbon segment, and uh, I really appreciate it. Obviously, we get more of those experiences as the film goes on, but even in the Lisbon segment, you start to see kind of that unraveling of the of the fantasy into the reality.
0: Yeah, Haley, what did you really appreciate about that corner of the movie? Whether it be just some of those spe- exploration of those specific vices, or just the way they built that built that set, like what, what did you really like about that?
1: Well, my favorite part was the tarts, <laughs> and I'm going to explain why.
0: Okay.
1: Something that I've noticed about parenting, as as a non parent, <laughs> is there's a propensity for parents to tell their child what they can and can't do without actually explaining why.
0: Because I said so.
1: Because I said so, right. And that often actually gets the child in trouble because because they don't have any conception of action and consequence. If they defy their parents' command not to do something, they end up endangering themselves or harming themselves or any manner of negative things, right? Because they were not given an, an opportunity to understand what the logical consequence of that action would be. Mm. And I noticed Duncan treating Bella that that exact same way in this segment. And when she is enjoying these these little desserts that she gets from a street vendor and is just, just like, these are amazing. They taste great. They make me happy. And I, as a sort of innocent child-minded being, just want to experience happiness. And Duncan says, no, we don't eat more than one of those. It's just not done. It just isn't how we do it. Of course, she defies him. Of course, later she goes off on her own and eats a ton of tarts, way too many. And within a few minutes, she's throwing up on the, on the street <laughs> because nobody explained to her why this is not done or given her any reason to avoid it. And so she had the kind of truly childlike experience of defying a parental order, finding out the consequences firsthand, and that being a learning experience. That was my favorite part of that segment.
0: Well, it's interesting because like I my favorite part and I'm glad I asked you that so open ended because I didn't even really I remember the throwing up at the when she went back to eat. But I I, for some reason, it even though, again, I've seen it twice, it slipped my mind, like him scolding her for them the first time. So, you know, different things stick with different people. And, you know, a lot of because of the friction that they have, she ends up going to explore on her own, which both of you guys have already alluded to. And some of those scenes are really nice and that like a lot of movies might not necessarily take the time to just have a character people watch like that. And it's something that I've grown to enjoy doing as an, as an adult, whenever I travel sometimes, whether it be by myself or especially with other people, sometimes like you might be on a trip with someone and it might just be like, they don't feel like doing shit. And it's like, fine, you're on vacation or whatever. You get to do what you want. If you want to sit inside a hotel room or sit inside your room, like that's totally within your right, but I want to go out and do stuff. And like, one of my favorite things to do now as an adult is like, just go to a city and like walk around. It it sounds simple, but like I'd rather, I'd, I'd sometimes I'd rather do that than like actually go inside and and do an activity at a place. I'd rather just explore a city, and that's not necessarily something a child should do. And maybe she's not, Bella's not fully grown at that point in the movie, but like that at that point, she you know in some ways you might've expected her to like be a brat and complain when, you know, Wetterman didn't do exactly what she wanted to do at a certain point. She's like, no, I'm going to go. And I want to like better my, I, I mean, there's a lot more talk of her later on in the movie talking about like wanting to absorb knowledge and be, become a more full person herself. But at that point, I don't think she's really expressing that necessarily at That at that point in the same way that she does a little later in the movie, but she is like, I want I want to go do stuff. I want to go look around. I want to see this place and I'm going to go in this explore the city and i thought that that was like an interesting way to show her like maturing in a way that she'll go off and do that as opposed to like crying that like duncan doesn't want to like keep having sex with her or eat the same thing she wants to eat or whatever she's like i'll go do my own thing and i and, and that was where some of the more like beautiful moments of just w- 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 seeing that version of the city that they rendered uh took place and i really liked how that showed her growth in a way that wasn't just her talking about the ways in which she is like absorbing knowledge which is fine too and there's more of that later on but I, re- I, re- I really like that side of it as well. You know, what I was alluding to when I was asking Haley about seeing this with her family, she warned her family about the sex stuff. And that's obviously been a big talking point with all of this. But like, we haven't even really dwelt on it too much. We've just talked about it as like a thing that kind of happened in this movie. And I think that speaks to how well they integrated it. I've heard people kind of saying that's very prominent in the movie uh, from the moment it first debuted at whatever festival it debuted at. I think it was Telluride. But like, at the same time, like, I don't, I haven't heard that much criticism about it. Like, oh no, this is like gratuitous or poorly done or anything like that. I'm wondering, like, how you guys felt about how they like integrated that into the movie in a way that like really like made sense for the character in a way that didn't feel like it was just doing it just for the sake of doing it.
2: I, there's a an old kind of axiom that I I constantly think about uh, in terms of film. Everything is about sex, except sex. Sex is about power, um, and that tends to be kind of, in my opinion, some of the you know better portrayals of you know those kind of dynamics in film you you tend to want to try to avoid superfluous sex scenes right where there's just nothing really going and so what that results in right is in good films when you have sex scenes they tend to be about something um and i think that's the credit of this film i i don't think Maybe with the exception of some of the stuff in Lisbon, I don't think there's necessarily anything superfluous about the way that sex is portrayed in the film. And and almost perhaps in an inversion of what you might expect, I think some of the most meaningful or interesting portrayals of sex come when she's a prostitute um, versus when she's with, with Duncan, which there, there might be some comment there about, you know, she's... <laughs> When she's doing it for free, it's completely meaningless. <laughs> it ends up being completely meaningless. Um, but, you know, the 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 stuff with, you know, Duncan, I thought was it's just almost funny because of how like ridiculous it is. And I think that's the point. It's so over the top. It's so loud and absurd uh that it it, you just have to laugh at it i think that just this kind of part and parcel to duncan whatever and as a character entirely um there's everything about him is laughable even sex scenes with the character but later on there's there's still more sex scenes arguably more graphic uh, sex scenes later in the film. Once, uh, you know, they r- arrive in Paris, and Bella separates from Duncan and goes and you know starts to work at a, a at a brothel in order to make money. In those scenes, Bella, I think it's it's interesting. It's like it's almost like she finally kind of discovers the humanizing element in sexual interaction, which in the early part of the film she just dis- you know her. You could argue that her. Sexual awakening is what sets her out on the journey, right? Again, a very Victorian concept. But it but nonetheless, it is in the story, in the narrative, that is what kind of sets her off on this path. Um, she discovers sexuality for herself and discovers it as an urge that she needs, like a as you know, an itch that needs to be scratched, basically. But it's not until later in the film when I think she starts to kind of understand that there is something deeply personal about sex and the irony of that right is that that realization comes in a brothel where she comes to interact with people who uh, you know she comes into contact with people who the audience is certainly led to believe at first are grotesque right we have this kind of preconceived notion of they're going to a brothel they're gross and there is some physical grossness to them as you could say And some of them have, you know, some of the people that she encounters are not good people. But she kind of starts to learn that everybody that, again, uh, sex means a lot to people besides sex. And that's kind of, I think, one of the most brilliant parts of that section of the movie and in just the portrayal of the sexual content in general, is there something very humanizing even in the weirdest and you know kind of uh, most exaggerated uh you know in graphic representations of sex in the in the Paris segment she makes she decides you know for herself that she's going to make an effort to humanize these people that she encounters I think it was a really smart way to do it because it shows you can you know both have control of your own sexuality You know, that's the it's the point of the movie at which she is getting paid for that. But it's also showing that you don't there's a you know, a human in every interaction, I guess you would say. I mean, it is cliche to say, but she learns a lot about the world and a lot about people in that segment. You know, she learns about the ways that people can be embarrassed. She learns about the ways that people can be, you know, made to feel uh, vulnerable and she also, you know, learns some weird stuff about people, which all goes back to, you know, the point that I'm making, which is that I think, you know, this film does the smart thing, which is primarily to make sex about something else.
0: You guys, you guys made the, or one of you made the, pointed out, I think Haley pointed out the joke about the means of production, uh, or, or yeah. which, I, which, which I really appreciated. But like the one thing I really appreciated about that, that corner of the movie, but aside from like laughing the most, I think the hardest I laughed the whole movie was like, her explaining to Duncan what she had just done after she like went just to make the quick money. Like I, I, cause you, you know, his character won well off at that point to like, just know like exactly how he's going to react to that, but like how non-plus she is, it was just a really great moment of acting between the two of them, but also how like, it's like, it doesn't really look down upon sex work at all. I think it's oh, just a big, a lot of credit for that. I think goes to Catherine Hunter. Uh, you know, that's a great performance. She does as the lady that runs the brothel. Uh but 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 also like separate from, even separate from like what she's learning from any of the people that she's interacting while she's there, just the way she's thinking about herself while she's there, and that she doesn't see this as like being relegated to any kind of prison or something. It's like it's so clear throughout that her entire time there, like this is like not only a means of production, it's a means to an end. And she's like, I'm gonna like I'm doing this because it's gonna be something it's something to do for now that I don't mind doing that's gonna make money, but like I, I know there's more to life and more for me to do as a person. It's just a thing I'm doing for the time being. And I, I enjoyed seeing just like her continue to mature as a person throughout that section of the movie. Haley, what, what how did you kind of feel about just like, did, did you have any other, other thoughts you wanted to add on how they kind of portrayed, you know, Bella's uh, sexual awakening throughout the movie? I think it's, and also like, you know, it's interesting. Like I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about it now. I mean, not that there's a problem with it, but it is interesting. It's a movie that's written and directed by dudes. But uh, Emma Stone is a producer on the movie. So I think and it seems like it is something she had a real hand in. And I think it does seem like it's probably, you know, uh, handled with more care than you would necessarily expect before like two dudes just like tackling the subject matter.
1: I agree with a lot of what Elijah said about how I do think that the sex scenes in this movie are all accomplishing some some kind of storytelling goal and they all have some kind of significance. I didn't find them gratuitous or over the top. And i do think that to whatever extent people do find them gratuitous is actually reinforcing the point of the movie uh the way that i conceptualized sort of her sexual journey throughout the film is that she goes through about as pure of a sexual awakening as a person can where she is immediately in the hands of duncan who only cares about sex it's the only thing that matters to him And he is self-professed and she later agrees that he's very good at it. So her initial sexual experiences are about her pleasure and about her experiencing what sex has to offer and seeing it as this wholly enjoyable thing that she asks for from him constantly, that she talks about openly with other people without realizing that it's an embarrassing topic. So she's introduced to sex as a positive thing, a totally positive thing. It's only in Paris that through her completely voluntary and actually enthusiastic participation in sex work, does she begin to realize all of the ways that society has completely fucked up sex. Mm -hmm. All of the ways in which it has been abstracted from personal relationships, the way that it's been commodified, the way that women have been objectified, and the ways that men as well have suffered from that dynamic. The loneliness that men feel, the complexes that people develop around sex, the confusion that she experiences when confronted with men who want her to be uncomfortable or not enjoying the experience, all of that, like messiness and all of the sort of darkness surrounding sex that is the result of societal influence, all of that is what she kind of learns and experiences through that process. But when she goes into it, she expects nothing but a good time. She thinks, oh, this is going to be great. I like sex and it'll give me money. So this is this is going to be perfect. But she instead kind of learns that unfortunately, life is not that simple because we have so many societal expectations and superstructures that influence people's attitudes towards sex and influence them negatively.
0: I also like how they're able to accomplish all that. And well, yeah, she, I mean, she makes a point of uh, staying at the brothel, like various, like for in a couple of different moments, how she like, can we pick our clients? Okay. She doesn't necessarily love every situation she's being put in. I also like they're able, able to accomplish everything you just talked about without like basically like ever making her really suffer like a sexual assault. You know, there are moments where it's like, yeah, the, that looks like more uncomfortable than other moments. But it's like still it's always something that seems like she is engaged in willingly. It's just, you know, she's mm-hmm. learning different things about what she wants. So I feel like a lesser movie might have tried to, like, teach her a lesson through that or something. And I don't think it needed to go there, but I could have easily seen that happening because we often see different movies or TV shows kind of like use like, you know like sexual trauma or violence against women is like some way something that they have to overcome and that's the arc of the story and this didn't need to be that and i i wouldn't have been like but like you're kind of conditioned to think it might go there at some point too uh and it, especially when it's like all these uh iffy looking dude she's having to you know take on his clients the, the, that corner of the movie never quite goes where exactly where you think it's gonna go she, i mean i guess she there's, there's other there's a couple other moments that i again i think her you said the interactions with the Catherine Hunter, were like really, really interesting. And also uh, it, it's, it's implied that she has, you know, she has some kind of relationship with another one of the uh, prostitutes there. There's just a lot of different surprising things. And it doesn't ever take the quite as dark of a turn as you might expect it to at that point. And I kind of like how it it's just really impressive how they made that whole thing like a positive experience for her.
2: I was going to point out because you, you had mentioned, right, the kind of the negative irony, right, of this being, you know, a, a main topic in a film. Uh, you know, directed by a man and written by a man, um, I would I would like to give a shout out to Elle McAlpin, mm, um, mm-hmm. who is the intimacy coordinator yeah. uh, for the film. Uh, she got her start actually as an intimacy coordinator on The Great, which was a series heavily influenced by The Favourite uh, and created by Tony McNamara. So, I think probably likely how she formed that relationship. But she's also been the intimacy coordinator on a couple of other really interesting things like uh, Flux Gourmet, which is Peter Strickland's weird, sexy ASMR black comedy horror film.
0: Interesting combination of words. Yeah. Uh,
2: Peter Strickland is the guy who did uh, Duke of Burgundy and Berberian Sound Studio and In Fabric. That's kind of his thing, is like these weird, sexy, dark comedy horror things. She also was the intimacy coordinator on the full Monty, the TV show uh, that came out last year. So I I, I was very impressed because I think this is, this is definitely a movie where you need an intimacy coordinator given just the sheer amount of nudity uh, in the film. Um, and so I thought it was all, uh, you know, handled on screen very well and, you know, I have to imagine that that was probably reflected on set, uh, given you know Elle McAlpin's, um, you know, oeuvre. I don't know if intimacy coordinators have oeuvres, but uh, given oh. her body, given her body of work and her background, you know, I think it was a it was a good decision, and uh, she was the right the right call for it. So yeah,
0: I think just the fact that Emma Stone has been out there like talking about just how great of an experience this movie was, you know, that would not have been the case if. The intimacy coordinator is not doing her job given everything that uh Emma Stone has to do, uh, that would have required an int- intimacy coordinator in this movie. Uh, guys, like the one part of the movie besides like the end that we haven't really talked about yet is like it, that we haven't talked about is the one that without the with the, like really very little sex, and that's on the, and that and that's the cruise ship section. And you know, I'm of two minds in that part of the movie, in that like I uh, I mean, at that point, it's like you're almost getting tired of Duncan at that point, uh, he's just become a lot. Uh, even again, we, we haven't talked that much about Mark Ruffo. I love that he did this and I really thought he did what he was asked to do very well. You know, it's funny. I really actually like Rami Youssef in this movie and he's friends with Gerard Carmichael who like produces Rami's show and stuff like that. But I didn't love Gerard Carmichael. Just thought, I, I don't know if he the, the, the delivery of that dialogue suited him as well as it did Rami, which is like surprising because I think they're both capable actors and other things. So it was like, it was kind of awkward every scene he was in, but then I loved every interaction she had with her, Gerard Carmichael's companion. The old lady who like uh who for whom Bella is very concerned about her sex life. Uh, I just thought like that was really interesting. So it was like, you know, I kept going back and forth from like from scene to scene, like it was all but it was interesting, like seeing her, like, you know, uh Bella be very concerned about like the I don't know. Were they supposed to be like slaves, or they human trafficking victims, or were, I don't know, just like very poor people that were like suffering? I, I don't know who it was, but she's very concerned for some people she sees uh, that are like off 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 the cruise ship that are like uh, in dire straits of some sort, and she wants to give them money. Like that was interesting. Like it, it just felt like I was kind of annoyed by Duncan one scene. I was annoyed by Gerard of the next. I liked that one thing. I didn't like another. Like that was the one part of the movie that was a little more uneven for me. What did you kind of like? How, what kind of struck you about that part of the movie, Haley?
1: I. Saw that section of the movie as Bella not only developing the capacity to understand, but also confronting through these interactions with other characters, various philosophies and ways of understanding the world.
0: That was that was what that was what Gerard Carmichael was a mouthpiece for. Even if I I, I can acknowledge he served a purpose, even if I didn't love what he was doing
1: with the role. Right, and I do think that his his dialogue was great. I, I do agree the delivery was a little stilted. I think it was in part maybe his delivery in particular that made my mom say after the movie, was this directed by Wes Anderson? (laughs) (laughs) Like, I think he was a little too on the stilted side.
0: It would have fit in some of Lanthimos' other movies. It just didn't, it wasn't the vibe for him for here, yeah.
1: Yeah, it would have made perfect sense in The Lobster, for example. But he was expressing one way that Bella could approach the world, which is to see the cruelty of it and sort of lose hope and lose confidence in the in the ability of human beings to do better and to strive to treat each other well and to achieve and pursue happiness what i found most interesting about this section is that i think it demonstrates maybe for the first time that bella has an innate morality she is not completely influenced by the people and structures and ideas around her, she actually does have an innate sense of what is right and wrong and an innate sense of what she believes because nobody tells her, for instance, that there's something wrong with the impoverished poor people dying on the streets. She just knows that and she has an extremely intense reaction to that without anybody explaining to her why that's a problem or why that's wrong. She just knows it. In fact, she's being told by Harry off to the side that this is how the world is and she just needs to accept it and be okay with it. But she can't because she has that feeling in her heart that this is wrong. By the same token, when Harry kind of offers this sort of nihilistic and pessimistic worldview, she rejects it outright at every turn. There's no point where she's persuaded by him. Um, So we do get the sense that Bella does in fact know herself, even if that knowledge is still developing and still growing with time. And that she's not just going to be molded by her circumstances. She's not going to follow the direction of anybody who befriends her or gains her trust. So I thought it was actually a pretty strong moment of the film. And it also actually made me think and write down in my notes and realize that Bella and Duncan's relationship actually ends up becoming kind of abusive. And that was a really interesting angle and direction that I didn't expect the movie to go. But there's a strange kind of explanation and, and justification for her remaining with him for as long as she does, which is, I think at one point she said, I always think it will be better in the morning. Mm -hmm. And that is the sort of tragedy of, of Bella is that she's, she sees the goodness in people. She sees hope and she's an optimist. And we, Learn that in this section, but we also learned that there will be people in her life who aren't going to get better, who aren't going to improve, who are going to always follow their worst impulses. And I think that that difficult lesson is learned in this section and in Paris, she's able to kind of emancipate herself from Duncan.
0: Yeah, Elijah, what, what 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 did you see in their relationship during that during that corner of the film? What did you see, as as you saw it coming abusive, but also like maybe becoming abusive, but also like what struck me was like, I mean, the stuff where he's like throwing the books off the balcony, like it's very explicit there. But like at the same time, I think you also like see her come into her own also. And just like, she's already learning to distance herself from him even before they get to Paris.
2: Yeah, I would say that it's, it is both the relationship becoming abusive, but it's also, it's also, a visual representation of him losing control of the relationship. I mean, he starts with the most control, literally locking her in a steamer trunk and putting her on a boat. <laughs> um, and it would seem to be right that she is trapped. She is, that's, she is at the point where she has the least amount of agency. Uh, she's literally been stowed away and now she's on a ship right under the thumb of this person who is clearly a bad influence on her and yet the entire segment is her finding ways to revolt against him and to you know kind of continue her own personal development and and because of that in a way right i think it makes the abusiveness of their relationship all the more apparent the relationship was kind of abusive already uh, You know, from the minute they land in Lisbon, uh, the way that he treats her, there's a degree of respect, but also mostly just dismissiveness and controlling behavior. Um, And so when they are now on this boat and there is there 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 is no angle, there is no escape. It suddenly becomes even more clear. I in that segment. Also, I thought. Anna Shigula as Martha, the old lady, absolutely brilliant casting. Um, it, it's the kind of Easter egg, I would almost say, because I think it is, that's just, uh, it was just spectacular because she, she, you know, I will say that. Yeah. so say, where,
0: where would anyone know her from that makes sense? So,
2: so uh, Anna Shigula has been uh, an actress in German cinema for basically since the 60s she's 80 so that tells you how long she's been around yeah she's been around for a while she she happens to actually be in a hungarian film that's one of my favorite films of all time called verkmeister harmonies that movie is about 20 years ago but Really, where I think most people would know her from is her uh, multi-year, I mean, I think it, you would say one decade, because he didn't really live that long, unfortunately. But uh, Rainier Werner Fassbender, the German New Wave director, she was probably, I would say, one of his main stars during the period. Um, one of their first collaborations was the film Katzelmacher, which was Weirdly, coincidentally, in my like random rotation on my top four, uh, on Letterbox, like last month, right before I went to go see this movie, not not even knowing that she was in the cast because I didn't really look that deeply into the cast or anything. You know her. You knew her when she. You knew her when you saw her, though. Oh, instantly, yeah. Um, and she she was in uh the Bitter Tears of Petra von Kant and Berlin Alexanderplatz, but but what makes this casting so perfect is that she plays the lead in fassbender's film the marriage of maria braun she plays maria braun and in, in a movie which is about a woman who gets trapped in an unfulfilled marriage because her husband that she's been betrothed to is imprisoned after world war ii and so she ends up becoming the uh, the the mistress of this uh <laughs> dickhead industrialist and while, and while still trying to remain true to her husband who's in jail, um, and it's all about, you know, kind of her uh, experience in this moment in her life and the, the expectations that are put upon her uh, as a woman and how she has to navigate the gender and sexual politics of the time period. It, it's it's a really brilliant film. It's the first film in Fassbender's BRD trilogy, which are all films that deal with uh, women and femininity. Uh, there's Marie, Marriage of Maria Braun, uh, Lola, and Veronica Voss, all of which came out in a period of like three years. Lola and Veronica Voss don't have Anna Shugula in them, but uh Marija maria bronze the first one and she does a phenomenal job in that movie and so i was super excited when she turned up in this one because i was like ah the the brilliance of the casting the you know specifically the 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 picking of an of an actor who's probably her most famous film is a film about the societal pressures put on women i was i just absolutely adored that choice and of course i mean she just she Absolutely kills it. She's in the movie for like five minutes, and they're amazing every single second.
0: I really, I really enjoyed her presence. uh It was, it was, it was just again, just really smart to put like someone like so many different types of people for Bella to interact with, you know. And that was a, uh, and th- that, those are some of the more rewarding moments in the movie, as far as I was concerned. uh Guys, we got, we got, we got to jump to the end when she kind of goes back to London because uh, we we've been going a while, and it's gonna be like past midnight when Elijah and I finish the Iron Call at this rate. But uh, I, I, I am curious, like. You know, I made mean, it totally made sense to me based on what we saw with her and God's relationship that she would go back there once she heard about him being sick, and it was it was really cool to see like how he took her. Like, like we were talking about the relationship earlier, it was cool to see how he appreciated how she, who she had become when she got back to him. Uh, but then like, you know, he's like on his deathbed, but then he he rallies with the help of some heroinist, heroin, I think he's what he said, heroin and cocaine to get to her wedding. She, th- th- but then she uh, she leaves Max at the altar when uh, her husband from a from her previous life, uh, play, played by Christopher Abbott, his name is Alfie, shows up at the wedding to object. She makes a decision. She wants to go with him. It's interesting because like I think at that point, like the way Max interacts with her when she gets back is like actually like, you know, really, you can see why that would be appealing to her, even if it's, you know might in some ways feel familiar to her and safe. Uh, like he's very charming with the way he doesn't judge her for her past actions. Uh, and she's like, all right, I guess this is where I'm my life. I had my fun. I'm going to get married. But it also made sense to me that she would just go with this guy that came up to that showed up at her wedding because she's still like, seems like she's all about new experiences and just exploring stuff. And like in, in, at the same time, doesn't necessarily think, all right, I need to, I need to just all of a sudden settle down for the rest of my life. Here's another option. Uh, what, what did you think about that decision? Uh, Haley and did it track for you?
1: I think it tracked not only because I think she's still totally open to new experiences at this point, but I think it's ironic to think about the specific moment in which this happens. She's about to get married, which is something she doesn't necessarily understand yet, except for maybe maybe her interactions with other people might have given her some idea of what marriage is like, but it's not something she fully understands or has any experience with herself but it is this incredibly omnipresent way that that society is constructed and way that women's lives specifically are constructed there's this notion of our lives are constantly leading towards marriage as the end goal but she has no idea what it what it truly is and in fact she only really agrees to marry max because he seems to understand her and he doesn't seem to want to control her as heavily as many of the other men that she's met. So at this moment, when she's agreeing to something that she doesn't even completely you know, understand, she's confronted with somebody from the past that she has no access to, who can offer her some insight into what marriage could be. And really, what the darkest manifestation of a marriage could be and i think she's naturally curious about that and she's also curious about her herself and her origins and what happened to her prior to god's intervention or creation of her so yeah it it completely made sense thematically to me that she would go with him and i also like that the the issue of whether she marries max is kind of left open-ended as far as i could tell there was never any indication that they did get married or not or
0: yeah um, i like that choice yeah
1: yeah because i think by that point the message is that it doesn't really matter to her that the the idea of marriage ceases to hold any significance for her because she's she's seen all of its dimensions and what it can be and she's also she's also come to recognize that she's not necessarily beholden to that social institution the way that everybody else's
0: yeah, even if it may, maybe maybe it is maybe it's not even that it means nothing to her but that it's just it's because the movie makes that choice it's, it's not going to define her and that's exactly and, and that's fine it doesn't need to go back to that point after she uh extricates herself from alfie uh elijah ha, ha, what do, what did you think about uh as soon as you see that guy and then you see the life he brings her back to you can understand why she jumped off that bridge and she kind of comes to that realization too uh wh- what did you think about the the movie's choice to even like have that be a part of the movie at all like you know and and go there i mean it's a i think it would still be a pretty successful movie if it just you know it it could have found some other way to end it without putting her through that and getting her back there at the end but uh we get to like we get to see her um just just uh, kind kind of come to the realization that this this guy was a real piece of crap and that like Hey like I don't need this life and this is what it drove me to how, how did you feel uh how did you feel the movie uh did or how effective do you think the movie was in deciding to like show us what what her life had been before essentially
2: yeah i mean i think well i think purely from a mechanic, mechanical perspective it was pretty effective the movie gets really dark for the last you know for that, la- that the you know probably what 15 minutes or so before the end there i i thought it was a really smart decision because it is a loose end narratively speaking. You know, if they didn't kind of give you if we if we didn't really see that, there would be an outstanding question of, well, who was she? What was we've kind of talked about how at the end of the day, she's not a tabula rasha. She's not a blank slate, either in her philosophical understanding of the world or in just her who she is as a physical person. So they couldn't leave that undone. And I think it was really valuable, kind of as a as a coda, as a you know a sort of way to wrap up the film. Because in her previous dealings and experiences, right, getting back to kind of the the sexual content of the film, even the kind of some of the the darker characters that she meets, including Duncan, are still if not respectful of her, uh, at least they don't really question the ability for her to have any autonomy at all. And so it's an, it's an important ending or, co- you know, little sort of last chapter, if you will, rather, because it puts her face to face with, for the first time, somebody who is straight up, not only wants to control her, uh, you know, kind of physically and emotionally, and sexually but somebody who's willing to strip that one part of her that 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 woke her up to the world as it were to begin with um somebody who is completely content for her to not even really be a person yeah it wasn't one of the
0: more necessarily like most clever turns of phrase in the in the film but like one of the parts that like i was like yeah you go bella for figuring that out was when he's like oh you'll be i i, I intend for you to be as happy as you were before and she's like as happy as i was when i wanted to jump off a bridge it's like it, it, it was like the perfect response in that moment and we were all thinking it it's like okay she's she knows exactly what she's in, what she's in for right now. And she's going to have to figure something out here.
2: Yeah. And so I, I thought that was uh, a very smart way to kind of have that last chapter of the film, have the, the film go to that kind of particularly dark place that I knew that Yorgos can go to. Um, and uh, I, I think it worked. I think it worked quite well. Uh, Haley before, before, before you wrap it up, is
0: there any, 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 anything else in the movie, whether it be something, uh, Performance, A performance that we didn't already uh, highlight enough or something craft-wise? Anything else we didn't really touch on already that you wanted to highlight before we finished?
1: I just was really refreshed and impressed and happy with how whimsical this movie was and how whimsical the design of it was, the filmmaking, the costumes. It was nice to see... A movie that was actually about some really profound and serious themes about gender, about sexuality, about society, and sort of the human condition. It was nice to see that not only presented in such a bombastic and creative and unapologetic way, but also for it to be so sincere. I think the sincerity of this movie was one of the biggest surprises for me. I was worried it was going to be very satirical and kind of mean-spirited. That can often be a problem with films these days that have some kind of social commentary, at least for me. But the amount of sincerity and the amount of sort of genuine heart in the character of Bella and the experiences that she goes through was a very uh, delightful surprise that I really appreciated. And I think it's, is going to be the reason why a lot of people will enjoy this film even if they're not uh necessarily familiar with the style of filmmaking or if some of the more high-minded philosophical messages go over their heads i think we can all kind of root for bella as a character
0: 100 i don't know if i absorbed every philosophical message in this movie but i had a Shit ton of fun. Uh, Elijah, anything else you wanted to highlight before we wrapped up?
2: Yeah. I mean, uh, obviously, I got a shout out the production side Craft of the with Craft Corner with Elijah. Craft Corner. Yeah. Uh, Robbie Ryan, I think easily one of the best cinematographers working today. He did the favorite and too, right? He did. Yeah. He did the favorite this man also did uh m- like marriage story and the Meyer <laughs> the Myra story he's like
0: no bomb box guy too uh mm.
2: yeah he also did stuff like I Daniel Blake which is a much like a much more like grounded film
0: that's funny so he did Slow West which is like he
2: did he did Slow west he did a very underappreciated film uh, by a guy called Daniel Wolf called Catch Me Daddy which is a phenomenal thriller uh that is totally like this insane neon washed grungy um you know uh, chase film uh his one of his first films is one of my favorite films from that year 2006 is red road which is uh andrea arnold's first big film uh, the woman who did American Honey, which I think he also shot.
0: And he shot um, Fish Tank.
2: Yeah, and Fish Tank. Um, but Red Road is a movie where like a third of the movie takes place through CCTV cameras. Hmm. This guy is just immensely, immensely versatile. Yeah, especially because
0: it's like Slow West. Like it's just all, you know, outdoor landscapes to look yeah. like the American West. And here it's like the exact opposite. Like it's built, it's, it's, it's the whole thing is supposed to look like it was done on a soundstage intentionally. And he does that incredibly well too.
2: Yeah. I think uh I think he's he's absolutely one of the most talented cinematographers working today. I think a great comparison, one that probably I think Yorgos Lanthimos would love, is John Alcott, um who was Kubrick's cinematographer through most of his uh you know, kind of the the high period of Kubrick uh in the in the uh, 70s. I think Robbie Ryan operates in a very similar dynamic. He's extremely technically proficient and can make basically anything look really unique and have that sort of specific flair to it Uh, obviously i think robbie ryan specifically has talked about uh how uh bram stoker francis ford coppola's bram stoker's dracula um was one of like the main inspirations for the film like is the, the one that him and yorgos talked about most constantly when talking about how they wanted to shoot this movie uh, anybody who's seen that movie knows that they did a really good job in capturing the kind of like ridiculous, colorful, um, certainly not grounded in reality. Uh, we would, I think, we would call it expressionistic hmm. uh, presentation of a of a time and place. Um, and I thought the movie did a great job with that. Uh, I mean, I got a shout out, Company Three, uh, <laughs> the uh, who who did the color out of the London office um, for this. I believe it was. Who is? I, I got to do a little
0: bit of a disclaimer now on the bio. I didn't know I had a I had a biased guest on. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, right, but i I thought the um I thought the color was really strong. Um, I thought it did a good job at kind of making certain things pop without being uh, too ridiculous. Um, there's a whole team over in London, a whole a whole crew. I don't really know a lot of those guys, but the the colorist was Greg Fisher. Um, and, uh, or at least the lead, the lead colorist was Greg Fisher, who's worked on everything from, uh, I think he did like Ad Astra to world war Z. I think he did Spider-Man homecoming. He's, he was the colorist for a film you'll be talking about in a few weeks, a uh, book of Clarence. So he, he's a very versatile colorist. Um, and I think this was a, a chance for him to shine. It's a movie that's got a lot of you know depth that kind of rejects, I think the, tendency in sci-fi fantasy we have nowadays to sort of make everything, you know, washed out and uh, you know, desaturated and grungy. Um his is a world that's that's highly saturated and pops quite a bit and uh makes big use of, you know, production elements, costumes, sets, you know, and draws color out of them. Uh and I thought that was um a, a really good that was something I was noticing while watching it. And that was and yes a bit, bit biased in that regard but still when i when i notice it it's a good thing
0: yeah even people who aren't employed by company 3 can acknowledge like this movie does well by with its color uh i don't have a ton to add myself i'd like to just highlight and say Um, man, I, 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 when I saw she was in the cast, I had higher hopes that they would give Margaret Pauly more to do. I really enjoy her as an actress, and it was hilarious, but it was like, but like, you know, in, in a longer version of this movie, I think they do more with that character, but props to her for just wanting to be in a Yorgos Lanthimos movie bad enough to like show up just to like bang a little mallet on something and then like make some funny noises uh you know i think she's going to be in that next one that he has coming out with emma stone so hopefully uh hopefully she'll have a bigger part in that i just always enjoy it and uh and just like again and shout out to christopher abbott too that guy's a really good actor and he's like has very interesting filmography and has a lot of interesting stuff coming up i think he just replaced ryan gosling in that wolfman movie or whatever too uh so he has a I I think it's cool that he showed up and like made the most of like a really a heel of a character really quickly when the movie was basically only had like 25 minutes left. Uh, so I uh really appreciated uh, his presence too, and just uh yeah, obviously really really enjoyed it. Haley, before before we get you out of here, now that we're done with this, is there anything else you've been watching recently you would like to recommend to the listeners before we say goodbye to you?
1: Well, we've been watching so many things that makes my head spin, but can I give an art <laughs> recommendation?
0: You can give any kind of recommendation you want, something you've been staring at, something you've been reading, something you've been watching.
1: Well, to anybody who liked this movie, please uh, be familiar with the work of Henry de Toulouse-Lautrec because every scene in the Paris part of this movie is like a Toulouse-Lautrec painting. He was a late uh, 19th century French painter who particularly uh, created works in brothels and in nightclubs in Paris um, during the kind of bohemian period. And I am absolutely certain that his uh, paintings and his drawings were inspiration for this movie. Um, The lighting, especially the costuming, are so similar. As soon as you take a look at some of his work, I think you will be surprised. He's also just a great artist to know about and to enjoy and to look out for the next time you're in a major museum so that's my that's my little recommendation
0: haley uh again thank you for the uh very different but uh very insightful recommendation uh you can find haley on letterbox at i guess it's hj3876 i just looked it up so uh and she uh, whenever she writes it's always really interesting and uh haley look forward to seeing you back soon at some point in 2024 thank you for the time (music) And now we're back and Elijah is still with us as we are going to talk about the iron claw. It's the newest film from writer director, Sean Durkin. It follows the story of wrestling's Von Eric family, uh, who was a, you know, uh, the, the patriarch of that family was a guy named Fritz Von Eric, who, you know, was a bit of a wrestler himself in the fifties and sixties. And then had a, but, and then he had a family though. And, uh, he became much more known for being like the patriarch of the family and like the kind of the head of wrestling and, Texas, back when it was a very regional sport. He had several, he had several sons. They were uh in the movie, they are portrayed by uh Zach Efron, who plays Kevin Von Erich, Jeremy Allen White, who plays Kerry Von Erich, Harris Dixon, who plays David Von Erich, and a guy named Um uh, named Stanley Simons, who played Mike Von Erich. And they uh Fritz uh you know encourage all of his sons to go into wrestling. And let's just say they I mean we're not doing a sports section for this all so should People can look this story up. Uh, but, you know, th- 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 things came to a very tragic end for almost all of the children in the Von Erich family, aside from Kevin. And he, so the film kind of centers on him, but, you know, it takes a look at what their careers were like as their dad pressured them into the sport and the kind of the, the grind of the sport and the toll it took on them as they like try to keep up appearances. Because, you know, a lot of people think of wrestling as fake, but that doesn't mean it's not in- in- incredibly competitive and puts you through a lot physically. Elijah, before we kind of jump into it, I was asking you because you uh, you wanted to talk about the movie, but I was like, "Well, what do you know about wrestling?" I don't know shit. I wanted to have some people that know everything, <laughs> and you said, "Well, I'm not necessarily a wrestling nut, but hard to avoid uh, living uh, growing up in Central Florida." So, uh, can you give us a little bit of context for like what your uh, what your background was with wrestling as something like as like a sport that you became somewhat familiar with growing up and why it is kind of oddly omnipresent in like the Tampa area, even if like you know for a while before WWE became really big, it was like a very regional thing.
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, the the era presented in this film, you know, which I guess you would say is probably the the NWA era, the National Wrestling Alliance era. At this point, it's at the end of that era, but you're talking about like through the seventies, right? That sort of predates me. But when I was growing up, it was the height of um, at the time, uh, you know, d- the WWF superstars, the beginning kind of uh, beginnings of uh, WWE and sort of the the most popular era of that you know, kind of representation of wrestling. I did not come from a family that had any particular interest in wrestling in any regard, athletically or for entertainment or, or anything like that. But uh, in Central Florida, right, um, I, I guess I don't, I think a lot, probably a fair amount of your listeners have some experience with Florida, but for those who don't, Um, You know, you're talking about like the 90s in Florida. This is an era where there's really two kinds of Florida, which is rural backwaters and cosmopolitan, you know, cities and all of the, the major cities really in the era are making their name because they're glitzy and fancy um and uh and and they're beachfront and they're exotic and that goes for Miami it goes for uh Tampa to a little, slightly lesser extent but the result is that wrestling was kind of everywhere when I was growing up because it, it had a very big following in uh, you know in rural Florida just sort of the nature of the beast uh, it was, uh you know it was pretty easily accessible on cable tv um it had it had a big base of fans i think because it had uh you know it had it had flair it had storylines it had personality you know those kind of things and because of that it blended well with city life you know a lot of uh wrestling exhibitions were held in orlando uh or in miami or in tampa um, and so what that results in is everywhere you go, you know, even as a kid, not watching wrestling, I used to listen to uh, the the alt rock station in Tampa on the drive into school every morning, 97X. Um, and every morning it would be like there would be a dis- like there would be a corner of discussion about whatever was coming up next in WWE and more than likely what promotions were going to be held in in orlando or in tampa or in miami or things like that
0: i think tampa i think tampa's or tampa's a little bit of a hub too because i think there's like a training facility there for nxt which is
2: training and and of course over the years many wrestlers have just moved to tampa yeah um including hulk hogan i think Mm -hmm. probably most famously um so you know it's it's basically impossible to avoid in my childhood and you know It's kind of one of those things where it's like when you grow up with something that's so immediately on the periphery of your experience, but you're like not allowed to have it. (laughs) <laughs> um, you become even more curious about it. Did, you ever, did you ever even play the N sixty four games? Those are big. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Right. So that's probably my most direct experience with it is playing. You know, playing the N sixty four games at my friends' houses or going. You know, going to going to the bowling alley and going to the arcades and mm-hmm. playing their, You know, the WWE games in the arcades or just seeing it on TV at arcades or bowling alleys or places like that because that would be a fairly common blending of the of the cultures, right? Um those would be the kind of places you would just see that stuff on TV nonstop.
0: Well, so it's interesting like taking it in from that perspective. And I'm probably the same way but maybe was less intrigued by it. I just don't remember like being that excited by it though. I did play the N64 game. I just I guess I was just more into other sports, but I have a lot of friends to this day who are still like very into it. But when you're consuming it that way, you're maybe you don't learn about like the darker side of it until you like, maybe you start like coming of an age where you like follow the news a little more. And I, I, one, I started like reading a, um, a, a couple, I, a couple different sports columnists I write would like have like regular features where they talked about like dead wrestlers of the week or stuff like that. And like, what, what, how is this enough to be its own category? Uh, and then there was like, and then you, you would just hear different things about like, this post von eric family but like you know in the mid 2000s or early 2010s like various wrestlers whose like lives are just coming to very tragic ends and or just going through horrible shit and so it's kind of interesting like when you're just kind of consuming it in the way that it seems like you and i did as a kid you might just like not be as attuned to that stuff and then all of a sudden it's like oh man there is like a very like you know uh tragic toll that this sport seems to take on all these people and i'm kind of realizing that right at the same time i am understanding like how fake it is at the same time fake in its own way because i i, I want to talk about the context of wrestling being quote fake and then how this movie portrays wrestling which i think is really interesting but like you know i i, I had to, I, I had a little bit more of an understanding of that when i saw the wrestler aaron Ossie's movie and because like i saw that at a point where like you know i only knew so much about wrestling than i compared to what i know now and it's like okay well yeah, I'm kind of understanding like the toll this takes, though I still don't have the best understanding of like how do these guys get this messed up if like if it's all pre planned sport? Like, I never quite grasp that. And I think that's one thing that the Iron Claw does a really good job of is like how can this take this big of a toll when it's a sport where there's like a predetermined outcome? And why is that? And I think it, that's not that that's not the only thing the movie has on its mind. But I think in order to like fully grasp like what tore this family apart, I think it needed to do that. What, what, but you were you were really struck by the art and Claw too. And I'm I'm curious what what about it works so well for you and what made it so watchable for you? Because I found it really watchable. Going in, I knew that the family had a bit of a tragic end, but I didn't really completely know what that meant. I was like curious. I was like, Oh, like I, I like all these actors. Like I'm gonna click on Jeremy Allen White, who's he playing? And I clicked on Carrie von Ehrlich's, you know, Wikipedia page, and then I look on the right where you see like the category for board, and then right under it might say die, and then it might in a parenthetical say how they died. And I'm like, okay, I don't want to keep seeing more of this. I will wait till I see the movie because then I kind of just want to see because I I was like, okay. So I kind of knew Carrie died by suicide, but I didn't know anything else before I saw the movie. I just knew it was tragedy. And so I kind of braced myself for that going in, but I still like, again, found it like really, really like watchable and not like the tough hang that I necessarily thought coming in. So did you have a similar experience? Because I know you really liked it. And what do you think the biggest reasons were why you found this movie to be, you know, maybe just as entertaining as it was tragic?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's it's a very uh, cerebral film in its portrayal. The dialogue is very, um, you know, I wouldn't necessarily say sparse, but it's kind of like, it's the kind of dialogue that I think we just love, in, in, especially in psychological movies nowadays, where everything is like very layered. And there's a lot of uh, levels to kind of what people are saying. Um, it's a movie you have to kind of unpack while you're watching it. It's a very active watch. Um, and it's stylish too, which doesn't hurt. In a way, it kind of is like wrestling like that. But I what I really liked is that there's a scene early on in the movie um where they've you know they've come and established Kevin Von Erich, who he is, and showing his career, and he meets uh Lily James's character, uh Pam, and they you know go out on a date, and she asks him the question that everybody who's not involved in wrestling always wants to ask. And the answer that's given is so brilliantly succinct. The question being, you know, isn't this all, it basically, isn't this all fake? And, and the the movie's answer to it, Sean Durkin is the writer, you know, his answer to it is probably the best description of what's called kayfabe that I've ever heard. Uh, You know, in kayfabe or in wrestling, kayfabe is the idea Uh, of basically keeping up the appearance of something being genuine, even though it is staged. Um, And his answer is to, you know, if it's all fake, then why does any of this matter? Uh, You know, or like, how, how how can you get a, basically it's like, how can you get a promotion if this is all fake? Is he sort of deflects it and it's a really simple answer, which is that just because it's a performance doesn't mean that I can't still be good at my job basically. And it completely changes the direction of the movie because it completely dispenses with the idea that any of what you're seeing is fake. It answers so concretely. It's like, yeah, the, the storylines are made up for these characters in the, in the arena, but them as people, they are still performers. It wouldn't be any different than if they were doing ice skating at Disney, right? They are. They still have to be good at their job. They still have to perform at an extremely high level. They still have to uh, hit certain metrics to get engagement to be stars.
0: Right, and I think it does a really good job of like then answering the, the logical follow up question: is what does it mean to be good at the job, uh, given what this is? And because like that, that's where my mind went. And it's like, and I thought the movie did a great job of educating me on that. I, I did have to listen to like another podcast of them where David shoemaker, who like does a bunch of wrestling stuff for the ringer, went on the big picture and like we talked to and kind of educated them a little bit and educated me and is like uh, to decide who like gets to be in the championship bouts and stuff. like th- there's some politics that go into that, but oh, it's tons. kind of but but it's stemming from like who has like as Fritz even calls it in the movie, like who has the most heat right now? Like who is, you know, like putting on the best show such that they like are a good candidate to be the next one up it's funny because that scene involves Kevin saying that the Pam, but like the the natural uh, instincts for this job we come to learn are maybe not as strong as that of David or Carrie. And that is where some of the friction of this movie really ultimately comes in. And at different points, like it seemed, we're we're led to believe because Kevin is older than both of them and is a little more established in the, when it, when it starts like, Oh, this, he's like kind of the, he's the next one, but like Fritz sees like, Oh, maybe not like he's, not as good on the mic, and you need to be good on the mic to really leave a mark here or have another kind of signature thing. I and David is the natural on the mic, and so like David, like at, at one point, just kind of surpasses Carrie, and they do a really good job of showing how much these brothers care about each other. I should say first and foremost. Every every time there's like know, Fritz is putting them in an uncomfortable situation, it is really touching to see how they are there for each other. And but like, I mean, every time that like he sort someone surpasses Kevin, it is incredibly uncomfortable, but just like a reminder of like why this is so tough. It's like, you know, you can train and, and make your body the way Zac Efron's body looks in this movie that by all accounts is probably not that far off from what Kevin's looked like. And maybe even not quite as big. Cause you know, the movie only hints at it. I, I read this long Texas monthly article today. Elijah. I don't know if you saw that floating around anywhere that like they came out in like 2007, but like, just where they interviewed Kevin and um, the the mom and other people that were around at the time and just like went long on the family and the tragedy. And, you know, it, it ma- makes it clear in there that like, Kevin tried to downplay any drug use that he had, like, like, definitely all the others like did steroids to some extent. They just put this like incredible toll on their body and you can do all of that and work as hard as he did and have your dad just like be a drill sergeant to your whole life. And it's still not enough. So we see that with like what happens to Kevin in the movie but then the other, because we know that, you can only imagine how much pressure the other br- brothers are under. And then like, it's understandable everything that would follow from that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And that's what I mean about, you know, sort of making it real. And that's, that's the most important part of a movie like this that deals with a story that is so specifically tragic and so uh, in a way, almost unbelievable. I, I, I know we talked about, I think we mentioned it before, but sort of like a spoiler alert for real life. There's a brother that's completely omitted from the movie because it would have all, it would almost been un- unbelievable if it they would had have been so ridiculous to include a fifth brother who died by suicide. You know that I think the decision was made to just not include the character and I, and I think from
0: what i understand they might have incorporated some elements the, the fifth brother his name is chris but they might have incorporated some elements of him into mike's story but on and on top of that apparently mean like all the brothers actually even as young as chris who was 21 when he killed himself uh like ha- got married and had i think had kids like a lot of them did actually they just didn't have time for that in the movie but david had a kid even though david was pretty young when he died david had a kid that died like when he was less than two years old like there was just like so much tragedy that they had to, like cut out of here
2: Yeah. So, but that's what I mean about, you know, you have to, you have to make this story real. And I think that's maybe one of the best strengths of the movie is that it, it grounds this tragedy that almost has this cosmic quality to it in a lot of very real life concepts and real life issues.
0: Yeah. Beyond like, you know, just the pressure that they're getting from the parents, I think again, a lot of these problems stem from like physical issues beyond like the steroid use I alluded to earlier and like the complications that can have like uh, a lot of the ultimate tragedies of the brothers stem from like physical issues carries not so much as far as something that like happened that was not directly tied to the wrestling ring, at least like at first, but like, obviously Kevin is the one surviving brother, but like had his own share of like physical things. But it's like, even if it's fake, it can lead to all of these problems because of the physical toll it still puts on you. And I think, the movie did a really good job of that. Like, you know, one of the, one of the moments where like Fritz does get on Kevin is because he doesn't get up quite fast enough. Almost. He thought he looked too weak in a moment where he was supposed to like kind of get up and like potentially win a match and come after getting body slammed. And he actually literally couldn't. And uh, in, in the way he wanted he's like, look, I, I, I I, I literally like took a fall from seven feet up or whatever uh, out of the ring. Like I, I, I know I, yeah, it might've been a couple of seconds late, but I just couldn't. It's like to get the, to get the show to the point where you become the star who then might get tapped to go on to the next level. Like you have to put, you have to have big moves. And with that is going to come the risk of hard falls, which even if planned or choreographed are going to like take a physical toll. And I just think it's like, the the pressure that this dad who is like we can talk more about him specifically and it's an incredible performance by Holt McElhinney I'm glad I think it's awesome that he like got this opportunity I don't know much of him aside from Mindhunter and was in one of like the seven Guy Ritchie movies that Daniel's done a podcast on with us uh the oh Wrath of Man he was in Wrath of Man which was an inexplicably like Daniel's number one movie of 2021 or two uh but like I, I really I really like Holt McElhinney and he just puts puts the kids through so much it's like So you have like, they're like getting it from like, just getting killed by both their dad and like the game itself, which I don't think people fully understand. And I maybe haven't always fully understood just how physically taxing something that's choreographed can be. And I just want, I I wanted to add just like, you know, yes, like it all leads to a tragic end, but the movie, I think just kind of does a really good job of like tracking it all, all the way through. I, I didn't ex- exactly expect to have like such a, a fulfilling talk about the business of wrestling right off the top with you. Cause again, I'm a novice, but like I, again, that's why I thought the movie did like such a good job of talking about it. Let me ask you about these performances. Uh, they got like some of the, the hottest young actors going right now. And I don't, I don't necessarily think anyone's like necessarily shocked to like see Jeremy Allen white playing like maybe somewhat of a, uh, like a, a brooding character that's been through some dark stuff given like he is most known for. Uh, but like, I, I think most people uh, uh, deservedly So came away from this pretty blown away by Zach Deferon. And who like I've he's been in movies I've liked before, but never done anything quite like this. Uh, how did you feel about like seeing Zac Efron in this like transformational role?
2: I think it's what he needed. Mm-hmm. the The problem I think is that for so long Zac Efron has just been Zac Efron in films. Try as they might, you know, if you put him in something like Baywatch, he's just Zac Efron. I think some of his strongest performances, right, were like I like I like I like both Neighbors and The Paperboy, right? But th- I mean, those are fun, but those are still him ultimately just playing Zac Efron. I think you know you look at something like The Disaster Artist, oh yeah, which yeah. you know he's he's in a little bit of. <laughs> I think he plays the his Chris R. It's Chris Dash R. But they call like, basically call oh, him Chris yeah. R. Uh, yeah, I don't know, but. The best roles that I think he's had in his career have been transformative, have been ones that. Um, did, did you watch the Ted Bundy movie? Did you like the, the Ted Bundy movie? I I did watch Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil, and Vile, and whatever. I didn't think it was a good movie. I think that movie has a lot of problems, but I did think he was good mm-hmm. in it. Uh, you know, I, I came away from that movie having more problems with. Uh, the writing and the directing than I did with the actors. Well,
0: props also props to Sean Durkin though for like even thinking to do it given what we're talking about and what he had done before because I he apparently he just really liked him as a comedic actor but just kind of always saw something else there you know.
2: Yeah, I mean I think it's a recognition right. There's always a there in a way. There's almost a, I would say a kindred spirit between comedians and wrestlers right. There's there's always you always hear this thread with comedians that it's like the com- comedians are like the most depressed people that you know. Like any comedians that you know personally are probably like the darkest people you actually know, even if they don't always seem like it. And I think it's the same way with wrestlers. Wrestlers have this posture of, you know, of, of grandeur and of strength and masculinity. But obviously, as we've seen, there is an epidemic of, of uh, distress and depression and, uh, you know, emotional problems in, in uh, the wrestling community as well. So I think there's there's a, something of of a kindred spirit there between the two categories of of performer, if you will. So yeah, I, I agree. Props to Sean Durkin for kind of recognizing that and being able to find an actor with comedic chops, uh, you know, but who who can take the physicality of the role and who can. Uh, who can tap into that darkness and and portray that uh, in a way that I thought was very very convincing, very strong. I knew from the first. You see the first images of the movie, you see the transformation he went through for you know it's going to be impressive. So I would, yeah, God, I,
0: I would I would I shudder to, as I sit here just like munching on Reese's. I I shudder, <laughs> I, shudder I shudder to think of the uh, the workout routine and diet he put himself on. Uh, I, the one thing I think I, I just want to say is that like it's you know even if it's a dark movie like I think he I think he is asked to do a, a lot within a movie that is like, you know, for the most part, a pretty I mean, obviously darker in the second half, but it's like, it's a drama, but like, you know, he has to credibly be like a guy that's like strapping and can put on a show in the ring, but that you would also buy as like sexually inexperienced and unsure of himself, like what he's going to do. Like the first times he's like intimate with Lily James, but you kind of like, you buy that just because of like the way that guy has been raised. And like, it makes sense. He would only be comfortable and confident in the ring. And then the second he gets outside of there and like, has a girl approaching him. He's like that. I, I question if That was like a creation for the movie based on what I read about the brothers, but like, you know, th- that's the choice they made there. And I think he is like really good in those scenes where he's just like, not sure what to do with himself, but you kind of understand like when he's at home with his brothers or training that like, that is where he is most comfortable, even if that might not be the healthiest thing for these guys.
2: Yeah. I mean, he, he definitely portrays some of the sort of stunted development that, that maybe is not hundred percent correct for Kevin Von Eric, or at least in the way it's portrayed, but that I think taps into, you know, we just got finished talking about uh, pretty uh, poor things and there's sort of a similar element in a way in Zach Efron's performance in this movie that he has to sort of, he has to play somebody who does not really mentally match the physical person that he's playing. Mm. Um, you know, he the physically is playing a very, um, you know, imposing figure but he is kind of a, a bit of a child on the inside. And there's some weird, I mean, like I, I would say like almost Freudian stuff in the in the portrayal of the character, especially when he's in the ring that is real. That is the way that he actually performed in the ring. Uh, Kevin von Erich went into the ring barefoot and usually mm. wore, uh, you know, his his wrestling trunks were, I would say kind of diaper looking. <laughs> like he usually wore like white, a speedo type trunk um, and he would go in barefoot and it it sort of made him look like a child mm-hmm. uh, and it, I'm like I don't think it's intentional it wasn't certainly wasn't intentional in reality but there is uh, you know it's it's portrayed with specific detail in the movie because I do think it lends itself to the notion that it's like all of these all of the brothers are sort of in stuck development in some way and mm-hmm. as as old as Kevin is he is still the least uh, grown up in some in some ways. So
0: speaking of stunted development, what 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 did you think of these parents? Because they are kind of the worst, yeah. and <laughs> uh, and I mean even the mom in her own way because she's just oh, in such yeah. denial about what's going on. Great performance by Maura Tierney. Uh, what what did you think of how the movie did in like you know? We talk more about Kevin, but like you can kind of like these guys were kind of raised in their own bubble and all the same way and had a lot of the same issues. And you can attribute that to these parents. How do you think the movie did in like showing like what what these parents were that led these kids to and the choices they made and how that tracked with how they portrayed these kids?
2: Oh, I thought it was phenomenal. I mean, obviously, you have two highly underappreciated uh, actors in, in Maura Tierney and Holt McCallany. Um, I think they're, uh, you know. I'm still holding uh, Mora and Holt stocks. I'm begging audiences don't don't buy in because that way I can <laughs> I can cash in on my Holt and Mora stocks and uh, get them to act in in movies for myself at some point. But um, no, I, I you know you've got two just uh, heavyweight huh, actors. More to the point, you've got them written in such a way that really. Doesn't put, I, I, you know, going into it, I think, you you know, if just if you watch the trailer, right, you would think that this is about a dad who drives his kids to, you know, to, to tragedy. But when you watch the movie, there's there's actually a like almost an equal amount of blame, I think, in terms of in the narrative and the way it's portrayed placed on Doris, on the mother as well.
0: Yeah, because she doesn't seem like she's like, they don't portray Fritz as like, abusing her or like overpowering her she speak she speaks up maybe maybe i mean I guess that could be the case but she's just like she's just there and it seems like at any given moment like maybe she could put her foot down we don't know the kids go to her and she's just like kind of puts her head in the sand
2: yeah exactly um and and i like that it i like that it gives them it gives them both kind of equal blame um but it also shows where their mentalities come from you know the the opening scene of the film is actually, in. it takes place in the past. It takes place before any of the events of the film when the when the boys are still young, when they're still children, and Fritz Von Erich is still trying to be a wrestler. And it shows kind of how there's this codependency built between the parents, and it's setting up, it, it shows you the dominoes being set up that, that are going to fall later on, and kind of shows how they are they're priming themselves to pass on the generational trauma very early on, and I think that's it's played out in the rest of the movie. Their characterizations, you know, don't really change; they only get more fleshed out.
0: Yeah, there's just never a moment where like either parent like gives even a uh, a glimmer of oh, there's more to life than wrestling, which I think is like the most important thing. Uh, you know, we see or not Chris, uh, Mike, by all accounts, uh, somewhat of a musician, really enjoyed playing the guitar. That seems like it was based in fact from what I've seen. Uh, all the brothers are really, and you know, it's nice. Like all the brothers are like really supportive of that. They're not like pressuring anyone to wrestle that doesn't want to wrestle the ones that are already wrestling. And they're like, yeah, we'll go support them at a show. And the parents are like vindictive and controlling and like, how dare you know you can't even, you can't go play a show. Even if you're chaperoned by your brother's, like no way, like they're, they're just, they, they never, they never like offer any kind of like lifeline out of that life. And so Mike, who was never really in it, ends up wrestling. And I mean, yeah, obviously like there's a tragic end for Carrie too, by, by his own hand, but like, like Mike specifically, like could have been a musician, never, by all accounts, never really want to do it. Chris like wanted to do it, but like apparently had actual, uh, literal stunted growth and physically probably never should have done it. And so like what drove him uh, it's not in the movie and it might've been a little harder to, I get why they didn't do it, but like, it's, it makes sense. He's just like, he would have been known as the one Eric, the, Von Eric that didn't wrestle and that like drove him to suicide. So it's like, look, if it, it, these parents had just been like supportive, like so many parents, like you always hear today, like, you know, like it's uh, not that all celebrities make good parents, but I feel like every time I hear like a celebrity ask, like, are you going to want your kid to go into the business? So, like, I'm, I'm not going to tell them to do it. If they want to do it, they can. I'm not, I'll, I'll let them do whatever they want. Cause it's like, Hard to like, you know, put, put that expectation on your kid of going into like any kind of entertainment field at all, and let alone one that requires the physical toll of this one. And these parents never really like encourage anything other than that. Uh, the and the mom never encouraged anything, it seems like, and the dad is like just freaking maniac. I mean, I was like, I mean, I I don't, I'm I'm pretty I'm pretty polite moviegoer, and I like I always say I don't I'm not on my phone if I'm if there's anyone near me, and I'm you know, it uh, don't talk that much at all in the movies, and but then if like the moment where like on the eve of David's death, where he's like, "All right, boys, try to talk about who's up next," I was like, "Jesus Christ!" Like, I think I said that out loud at the theater. It's just like it's so bleak, you know. Like that 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 is where the movie goes, and by all accounts, it's what happened.
2: And and I think the movie shows the the passage of time really well. I mean, if there's like I think one scene where it gets a little trite, where it's like the you know montage of them becoming famous kind of thing. Mm-hmm but you know I, specifically with like Kerry right Kerry is you know not to use a an overused term but like he's cut down at the height of his you know at, the, at his prime right where he wins the title he wins the heavyweight title he 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 brings home what everybody was was you know final was really hoping for and placing their uh you know their their hopes and dreams upon him for. Uh, he wins it and it's not enough and it drives him to, you know, to self-destruction. And I like that it, it shows how quickly things spiral out of control, but how, how like that drags on and it wears you down after his success in the heavyweight championship, he loses his leg or part of his leg in a motorcycle accident, but it's not an immediate like, oh, he loses his leg time to kill himself. Um, it shows that he tries. He it's it's the the really like grating and dragging. Like the saddest part of the film is that he doesn't. It's almost that like he doesn't just give up. He doesn't back away from it immediately. He keeps trying. He keeps trying to impress his father. He keeps trying. To you know, maybe subconsciously outdo his brothers, and it leads to only more and more pain until that's all that he has left.
0: Yeah, they 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 had to cut it down. Another thing they had to cut down for time in the movie, but like apparently, like it wasn't like he instantly lost the leg in the motorcycle accident, but like it was messed up pretty bad. And then he tried to do too much on it after, and then they had, and then he had, had to it amputated. Yep. But what was wild is that like they don't explicitly say it in the movie, but I think I found out after when I look when I researched them, like they did, the public never actually knew about it. He just like got the prosthetic. He went away, I guess for a bit while he recovered and, got a prosthetic and was able to like fake it enough to like be a fair do fairly successful for a short stint in the WWF too. Like that's a a brief plot point in the movie though. A lot of it happens late that he, he leaves the, he leaves their brand for a while to go WWF and does pretty good, but is apparently just like also like just on a bunch of drugs the whole time he's doing it and is not doing well on the inside.
2: Yeah. I mean, he, he, I think it was really only after his death that the, that the full extent of his uh, maiming actually came out mm-hmm. in public. Other people knew. I think Roddy Piper's mentioned, you know, had mentioned before in interviews that when it was somebody that he was close with, he would feel, you know, enough freedom to take off the prosthetic, you know, and not be uh, embarrassed or, or you know, feel insecure about it. You know,
0: we talked about Efron a little bit and we haven't talked that much about Harris Dickinson. I, I liked what he did, but with, uh, with Jeremy Allen White, like, apparently like Carrie was maybe like the biggest and most strapping of them all. Jeremy Allen White is like a notable short king that might only really bother the most hardcore wrestling fans. Like uh, how, how did you feel about like his performance and did you even... Do you think he embodied the physicality of it well, even if he's like a little bit shorter in stature than some of the other guys in this movie?
2: Yeah. I mean, I don't, you know, as far as their physical stature goes, I don't, I don't know that I necessarily paying all that much attention or, or really knew the differences, but I, I, I thought what was, what was really impressive to me was Jeremy Allen White's physique, right? It's almost, it's almost kind of more impressive than Zach Efron's. Like Zach Efron obviously mm. got huge for the film, but like, there's like a scene where Jeremy Allen White's doing like a keg stand <laughs> and then he's like, and he's just like, it's, it's the subtle differences in, te- in storytelling through the portrayal of the characters, right? Kevin uh, was a wrestler through and through. That was his first calling and that was his build. He was big and broad and, you know, muscular, but not necessarily defined. Uh, you know, he was, he was bulky. Whereas Kerry was an Olympian. I mean, he was training to be, I don't want to say a real professional athlete, but, uh, you know, he was training Olympian. to be, he was training to be an Olympian um, and that's presented in his physique. He is, he's much more like cut and he, uh, you know, is in in some ways more imposing, even though he is not actually as big as the real Carry Von Eric or even as Zac Efron um, in the film uh it's it's almost like off-putting the way that he looks when you first see him um especially because of how you know we know what jeremy allen white looks like right <laughs> so seeing him in this mm-hmm. uh in this setting kind of crazy but um i like that i like the the subtlety of the storytelling through their different portrayals uh you know harris dickinson again not notably a bulky or big guy uh, but still definitely put on put on some weight uh, for for this movie and made himself uh, pretty recognizable. Um, mm-hmm. But but again, fitting with the character, David Von Erich wasn't the wasn't the the biggest of the family. He just had the biggest personality. And that's he was what the was... tallest
0: though. Apparently. He's like six, seven, apparently. But just yeah, he wasn't what was, well, you said wasn't muscular, but just kind of relied on his personality. And yeah, he was, he was big
2: in stature, but he wasn't like, you know, he wasn't as ripped as as like Carrie um and and i like that they portrayed that subtlety uh they portrayed him as being you know he's not the most ripped of all the brothers but he is the one that is the easiest on the microphone he's the one who does not shy away in front of the camera you know
0: he's also the one uh british guy in the cast that he did a pretty solid job having that's a big ass to go from being you know british to then doing a texas accent you know yeah being Uh, from texas (laughs) Yeah, I mean, like, so I mean, I, I who am I to say on who has a good Texas accent, but his didn't sound any better or worse than really any other people that were in there at all. Oh, let, let, let me let me jump to craft corner for a second with you, Elijah. Not that like we talked that much about sports movies or that you, but like, I'm wondering, did you have any feelings about like how they captured the wrestling in the movie? One thing I learned in doing my research is that. What, what what was their what was their division called now i'm forgetting it's like the world something um
2: wccw the world yeah. class championship wrestling
0: exactly yeah i that they were actually a little bit ahead of the curve because i mean they got off the ground a bit before wwf and that they were actually a little ahead of the curve in like how they how they captured it because they had their own like weekly tv show that was a big source of like how they generated a lot of their fame before they started that there was not that common to ever have more than one or two cameras on a match. And they like increase it to six, they catch stuff for more angles. And, you know, I think they put a lot of care into it to making these fight scenes feel pretty authentic though. They weren't necessarily trying to make you feel like you were watching it on TV. I'm just making the point here that like, they, this was a different product from a on-camera perspective than a lot of what came before it. And I'm wondering how you felt like the movie did with those. If I mean, again, with all the disclaimers before like we were talking about before that you and I didn't necessarily grow up watching a ton of wrestling, did you like the way that they shot these scenes and feel like they kind of did a good job of transporting you into like what it would have been like to be up close and personal with one of those.
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, they, they did a really good job. I think blending sort of the high flying nature of wrestling, especially wrestling in the era with uh, a need to kind of get in close and show you just how, how much a physical toll this takes on somebody, even, even when it is quote unquote fake, uh, Chavo Guerrero, uh, Guerrero, sorry, was, um, the wrestling, uh, advisor. I think he also, he also plays the sheik, Briefly, I think hmm. towards the beginning of the film, Chavo uh, Guerrero is a wrestler from our from our era, from our childhood. You know, kind of in the, in the that early two thousands period. You know, sort of the height of his uh, the height of his fame, and uh, he, he's uh, also from
0: Texas. Interesting. So I'm sure he, born in 1970 and from El Paso. So I'm sure he yeah, so
2: very much aware of these people in real life. And yeah, and I think uh, I, I think he did an excellent job. I would I would assume his involvement as a consultant for this, uh, you know, was kind of part and parcel to the way that those scenes were filmed. You know, and there's there's a, ironically enough, for something that is again quote unquote fake, there is a level of reality that we have to hold the the craft to, otherwise it's not believable. And I think this movie does that really well. It shows a lot less of sort of the the glamorous, iconic side of wrestling. I mean, it does show those. It shows people's signature moves or whatever, but more so the tighter, more in your face moments in the in the ring tend to be ones where people are taking unexpected hits uh, and and being punished and, and hurt in real ways. That was. I think one of the strengths of the portrayal was kind of showing it as brutal as it can really be.
0: Like I said earlier, I th- it did a good job. I mean, it was it was effective enough and like just how they, from a choreograph uh, a choreography standpoint, like watching any of these guys hit the floor at any one moment, it, it automatically, I kind of just got it. I was like, oh yeah, okay. I get why this is hard, even if it's quote unquote fake. And it, it did feel pretty dynamic the way they shot it. And I appreciate Sean Durkin doing what he did too. To create that feeling, and if someone like me, that's just like you know, maybe, maybe maybe I have a different bar for being entertained by this, as given that like I don't have a ton of points of reference, I don't watch wrestling, but like I feel like I've most of the wrestling fans I know of that have seen this have like you know given it a thumbs up. So I, I take all I take all that to mean that like I think they they did a pretty good job in putting giving Durkin what he needed to do to like get it right on the with respect to any of the any of those wrestling scenes themselves. <sighs> I, I don't know how much you necessarily need to dwell on it, like any one of the deaths of any of these guys. Cause I feel like we already kind of touched on what happened with each of them, but like, did you have any general thoughts, Elijah, just about like watching their downfall and how they, how the movie got you to the point where like this could even happen. Cause you know, I guess I, I maybe I was being a little, when, when I was talking earlier about like, how is this this watchable and all this sad stuff happens, I probably was not paying enough credence to the fact that like, well, there were really are any deaths the first half of the movie, you know, up until the point where they're at like uh, at like Kevin's wedding um there's not necessarily a ton that's like you know all that bad nothing going all that badly for any of them up until that scene in the bathroom stall which is really good actually i think from that point forth is then it's like shit gets really dark but like did you have any feelings i guess about any of the progressions they took with any of the brothers and or did it did it do you think they did a good job of like kind of following each of their stories such that you understood wh- how they got to the point where they did
2: yeah i mean i think it, it it was very well balanced kind of in its portrayal of each one of their their downfalls you and, know. And, and
0: kudos to them for getting it right with mike i think because i think they did a pretty good job of like understanding where he went and that that was like the one guy they cast that wasn't a star and i thought they still did right by him
2: yeah and almost in a way it was probably the right decision to cast somebody who wasn't a star because it really emphasizes the point that this guy's like an outsider in his own family and it's what drives him and it's what causes his downfall and Stanley simons i think probably first big role for him it, it feels like he's a part of this family but he's not or he is a part of the family but it feels like he's not really and that's mm-hmm. That's, I think, some good Ludo narrative uh, consonance between the, mm. the casting choice and the way that plays in the film. I think the movie does a good job of hitting you with the shock of it. I mean, like, even if you know the whole story through and through, right, it's still like it happens. It's hard to believe. It's hard. It's so hard to believe
0: it's a true story. It's, I mean, I know it's so
2: it. hard to believe but and, and it happens. I mean, like, I know I talked about, you know, how Carrie sort of has this this gradual and unfortunate fall off but some of these deaths happen so quickly and dave david's being one of them i mean he goes from being at the top of the world to being dead in, in just a couple of scenes and you, and it's this grinding feeling of you know that it's coming and there's nothing that can be done about it um and i think you know when we talk about kind of the thematic you know the overall thematic material of the film right the idea of what 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 is the iron claw what is really driving all these guys and the re- reality is that it's there's this this toxic masculinity this uh you know this gnawing generational trauma passed down in the form of toxic masculinity uh to each of these guys that's really it it makes it almost like it, operatic it is yeah i mean like this film is still a sports drama it's still by it's still biographical but it's a tragedy and you know it's coming and you know all you can really do is watch and i think it puts you interestingly in kevin's shoes because that's really where kevin was at kevin's childlike nature was both a problem but it also a shield in a way because being sort of i don't want to say a simpleton but but being so elementally connected to his brothers and to his own trauma it In a way, it shielded him. It kept him from ever, uh, you know, breaking down in the same way that Carrie did or that Mike did, um, even in his darkest moments. And when he isolates himself towards the end of the film because he's so afraid of the curse and, you know, the concern that he might pass it on to his kids.
0: It changes the name when it has the kid born or it doesn't change. It uses the birth
2: given name when the kid is born. Von Eric has a
0: stage name. Yeah. Real name is Atkinson.
2: Yeah. And it's, it's, it's tragic because all, all that he can really do is watch um, and, and try and keep a distance from it all. It's sad and, and very real, very true. You know, a lot of the time for trauma, really the only thing you can do unfortunately is to sort of keep a distance from it and try and depersonalize and detach from it. And so that was uh that was sad. And of course, you know, it, it really at the end it hits you in in full as as it hits Kevin in full, what's happened to him and his family. Um and so, you know, it, it, the ending is optimistic, but it doesn't negate anything that's happened before.
0: Leading up to the ending, I think Zach Efron does a really nice job of displaying how tough it was to go through life, given everything that uh Kevin was having to witness. But then at the actual end, which he is not necessarily a part of, it's they're they're on the boardwalk of their, on this lake that's kind of on their property. And it's like they, they render some version of the afterlife where all the deceased brothers can be around each other. Even the youngest brother that died at like seven years old in a freak accident. And in the prevailing sentiment I've seen, Elijah, from a lot of different people I've heard talk about this movie, is that, man, that shouldn't work, but they kind of did. I'm wondering if that was your reaction too. <laughs> like, it yeah, It's really works. risky to have like a kid just kick in lesser hands. Might just come off some corny ass, weird heaven scene. And
2: it's like, oh man, this is actually kind of moving. It works because of how it ends. Mm. I think it definitely has a, a a corniness to it, but when it ends and you realize that it's just Kevin imagining and hoping that that's what's on the other side for Terry and his other brothers, it hits like a, like a goddamn freight train <laughs> like, it is
0: Man, i i used to like we we'll, we're gonna do a podcast on scenes of the year at some point and maybe someone will want to talk about that one but like one thing i used to do and maybe i'll get back to doing it if i ever get back to doing a more you know detailed awards podcast where we talk about specific different kinds of awards uh like scene but other things too one thing i used to like do is do like line of the year or something like that uh and because there are certain lines that might stick with me and oh, yeah. from this movie it's i used to be a brother yeah. Which is like a freaking yeah. devastating line of, of dialogue. It's so, so short and to the point, but not the kind of thing you actually ever hear heard and voiced in that way. Yeah.
2: And again, it's, it's the benefit of Kevin being as, as simple and as, and as pure and as childlike as he is almost. That's what makes that delivery believable, is in that moment, him really realizing that, that truth, which would probably go unspoken in any other case but just completely yeah i mean just just absolutely heartrending. and i mean obviously the follow up from his sons both equally utterly sad but also uplifting not that
0: there was a uh, room for it in this movie or i'm saying they should have done it but did you in your research did you see that both of his sons became wrestlers and <laughs> i did see that i mean like look who are we to say how to raise their kids but it's, it's, isn't it kind of interesting it's like it makes you want like a whole other Documentary where all these people get interviewed, or just like I need another article about it. Like how how did after this happens, and you know, and maybe it's fine. Maybe Kevin doesn't actually blame wrestling. He again, the thing with him changing the kid's name. Maybe he just believes it's in a family curse. While representing some of the challenges that wrestling faced him, but it's like hard to watch this movie and then know that he's the one that survived, and then know that he had four kids, two girls, two boys, and that the two boys are like, yep yeah, we're going into we're gonna go wrestle.
2: Like that's, well, a, that's just wild. The thing though, you know what the difference is, right? percent. The difference is Kevin. The difference is that he's not Fritz and he's not going to raise his sons the way that Fritz raised him.
0: Right, I'm sure he didn't force them into that, you know.
2: They chose they chose wrestling probably because they couldn't avoid it as kids of Kevin Von Erich. I mean like it was always around and the movie shows that. Well, also like so
0: so one thing that's prominent in the movie is that like Fritz leads them to think that like I would have been a I would have been the fuck I would have been the next Lawrence Taylor if it wasn't for politics. Is I think something they get at, or it's like G- Gloria was like taken away from him at some point, and he had to turn to wrestling because football just wasn't gonna ha- in the cards because of other factors outside of his control. And you know it's funny because I, I I I I'm thinking back to it now I read this long article in texas monthly again about about levon Eric's and they they're following and the writer got a lot of time with kevin and this is 2006 when his kids are like in high school and it's like he was encouraging his kids to go play football so i guess you gotta think about it like that like he's letting them have a more nor- normal upbringing than he ever had but said like hey like you might still have the connections to make this wrestling thing happen if you want to have it happen and i can't imagine like doing that if you don't need the money but you never know there there's also a scene in that article though about like him talking to one of the sons who would eventually become a wrestler on their way to a high school football practice. Uh, so it's like that, that was something that they were aiming towards. And um, it just, I guess the family business is just calling. They were, they didn't become huge WWF stars, but like it's what they ended up doing. They're like a brother tag team type of thing. And I guess if, if if your dad went about it in a healthy way, then I suppose it makes sense. And uh, it doesn't, that story doesn't go into that much detail. I just think it is fascinating. If you grew up knowing that about your family and it's like, yep, we're going to go do this.
2: I mean, it's uh it, Yeah. It's hard to avoid them. I mean, even Carrie's I think daughter is a wrestler too. Oh, I
0: didn't I I missed that. I I knew he had yeah. daughters, even though I did yeah. not realize one, that was one where of she
2: was. Yeah.
0: Interesting. Oh
2: Elijah, anything else about the iron call we didn't already
0: touch on that you want to talk about?
2: No, I mean I think we even talked about craft a little bit already. Um yeah. I just think it was a, I think it was a very I hate to use the word important, but I mean it I think it's it is truly an important film in a lot of ways because you know there, it, we're seeing it now more frequently. I mean, I saw this on the same day as Ferrari, which is a movie that we've already talked about. That um you know that was also similarly kind of dealt with a lot of issues of you know toxic masculinity and whatnot. But there's there's not a lot of media you know in the past that engages with toxic masculinity in its own grounds, right? In a you know kind of couched in the the language and the the stories. That are kind of easily accessible for the people who probably need to deal with it most. Um, and so I thought that was probably the, the strongest element of the film is that it spoke the language in, in such a way that was believable and, um, and really uh, authentic and, and felt not gawking, mm-hmm. but respectful it's a story that's hard to ignore. I mean, you asked me early on, right? Like why, wh- you know, where my experience with wrestling comes in. And it's like, yeah, growing up in Florida, you can't avoid it. But, you know, to be honest with you, one of the first like real memories of anything wrestling related that I have was Chris Benoit. Oh yeah, there, who, yeah. You know, that was 2007, I think, which I was about 12 then for audiences who are younger. Chris Benoit was a wrestler who, who you know now it's probably understood had severe cte mm-hmm. and suffered from extreme uh depression and paranoia you know verging on schizophrenia uh began to take lots of uh drugs to try and stabilize himself and uh unfortunately ended up killing his wife and his kids and himself uh, and that was a, a national news story when i was a kid And it was one of my first exposures to kind of the world behind the world with wrestling. Uh, And for a while, that's all that I really, you know, knew with wrestling. And I think it's an, it's an important conversation to have because as many people as I, you know, as much as I was not deeply engaged with wrestling, there were so many more people who were and still are. And I think it's an important conversation to have not just acknowledging that you know these things happen uh but really kind of making the space to discuss why um and to uh to have an honest talk about it
0: yeah i mean again i think uh i i agree with everything you said so you know the movie can make those points about toxic masculinity without feeling like a lecture and being entertaining and getting great performances i think you got a pretty good equation there and uh yeah i think again it's this a Really, really well done movie. And um it's a shame it's not a little more in the awards conversation, but like I think it's really critics have given it its proper due and hopefully the audience keeps going to see it. Um Elijah, anything you've been else you've been watching recently you would like to recommend for the listeners before we get out of here?
2: Yeah, well, I mean we gotta stretch here because I was taught we were also just talking about poor things before. Mm. Um I know when we were talking about poor things, I I you know kind of alluded to the similarity. There's always a discussion of like who's the heir to Kubrick. Mm. Um and your your gross lanthimosis name comes up a lot i don't know if i would thematically agree but stylistically a lot of the traits are there you know the um and and so i think obvious recommendations would be uh you know lolita and a clockwork orange Mm -hmm. two very uh transgressive and controversial films that Kubrick made that deal with uh kind of notions of human sexuality and uh uh, you know, in, in gender relations and <laughs> the modern world. Um, but those feel kind of like a counterpoint, a challenge. I, the two films that I actually really want to recommend um, are Three Women by Robert Altman and uh, Hirokazu Karta's film Still Walking. Three Women is a darkly satirical uh, <laughs> psychological uh, film. Uh, with Shelley Duvall and Sissy Spacek and Janice Rule, who play three women uh, oh. <laughs> um, who in, come into the presence of each other uh, in this strange rural American Southwestern backwater. And uh, they, they begin to sort of meld personalities and, uh, you know, sort of take on traits and performance of each other's traits. And there's a lot wrapped up there about, you know, kind of expectations for women in society and, um, you know, the the performance of femininity and things like that. Uh, So in regards to poor things, I think it's a great companion piece. And then, you know, talking about Ironclaw, one of my top films of the year is Hirokazu Kureta's film Monster. And he has a film from 2008 called Still Walking, which is not about wrestling, but it is about uh, intergenerational trauma and toxic masculinity, um, and it's about uh, it's about child death. <laughs> it's about um, it's about the way that those things can weigh on people, especially on men who don't have a way to talk about it or who have societal expectations not to talk about it. Um, and uh, yeah, it's a film about uh, harsh father figures and. Son's trying to live up to expectations, and uh, so yeah. As far as Iron Claw goes, I would recommend Still Walking. Uh, both of them are available through Criterion. Um, Three Women might not be on Criterion Channel right now, but it is available as a Blu-ray from them, and I think you can rent it in a few places online. Still Walking is available on on the Criterion Channel and on AMC Plus and a few other places. All
0: right. Well, thank you for the recommendation there. I, I need to check out the new creator cause I, or just any others that I have, cause I, I really like shoplifters and I've never made it a point to go back and watch any of his other stuff. So I appreciate your, the reminder on monster and I'm going to try and get to that before we do our top 10 podcasts. I think it's going to show up on a couple people's. Uh, it will certainly on be on free. mine. So uh, yeah, I don't have anything else to recommend at the moment I'm recording so much right now. I'm just nothing really new. I've haven't already done a podcast on the, that, that really that hasn't come out yet that I would recommend. I mean, I, uh, I guess the, I would say, uh, yeah, I don't know. Just go watch all the movies that are coming out. There's so much stuff right now. I'm trying to do podcasts on all of it. So, you know, go see, go, go see the beekeeper, go see the book of Clarence, go see mean girls, go see, uh, go see all the strangers, go see American fiction. Cause I'm trying to cover them all in the next couple weeks. And it seems like all zone the, of they're, interest. They're all pretty good. I mean, if it ever gets to me, uh, yeah, I, I, Elijah, are you still monitoring? You're still monitoring. It's not, not, oh, I, got, I, I
2: got my ticket. Got it's, oh, coming okay. out on the, it's coming out here on the 18th. I'm going to be seeing it on the
0: 20th. Oh, that's might be if it gets here at the same time. That's my birthday weekend, so I got to look into that. So that's a good one to uh, recommend to everyone, and as well, hopefully, because I think you know it's going to be exciting when we can finally watch it. Uh, but yeah, so Elijah, you can find him on Letterbox at Mr. Smith Goes to FL. Uh, as usual, I'm Josh Chernovoy, J-O-S-H J-U-R-N-O-V-O-Y. On both Twitter and Letterboxd. Podcast, Twitter is RealMePod at gmail.com. Podcast Twitter is at RealMePod. Already told about everything we have coming up next. So I just want to thank Elijah and Haley again for joining me. And we'll see you next time.